power on. Hey, if you have a project that needs reliable cryptocurrency data, check out blocktap.io. Blocktap.io is a universal cryptocurrency API. You can get historical prices for Bitcoin and other digital assets that you can use to build charts and do market analysis. Blockchain data is also indexed, so you can get transaction statistics, address balances, and more for Bitcoin and other networks. Blocktap.io is free for personal use, and you don't even need to create an account to access the API. To get started, try some of the example queries on the homepage at Blocktap.io. Again, that's B-L-O-C-K-T-A-P.io, Blocktap.io, and we thank them for sponsoring Sovereign Tech. Woo, let's get back to the show. Accessing historical database. Year 2020. The tech giants become aware of the greatest threat to their corporatist domination. An obscure science and tech podcast becomes a major factor in a peaceful open source revolt against the military Silicon Valley industrial complex. The podcast, Sovereign Tech. Its host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. The tech giants try to stop Sovereign Tech. They can't. Ooh, the man that some call the most dangerous man alive. Being joined by, quite frankly, <laughs> this week on Sovereign Tech, someone who I consider the most dangerous woman alive. <laughs> <laughs> the, the magnificent and some dare, some would say the maleficent oh. <laughs> about that uh none other than ellen sovereign uh joining brian sovereign the man of tomorrow savzu the rated r radio star on this week's sovereign tech and wow you know it's been a little while it has. since you've been on hasn't it mm-hmm. um not not that you've been far away in fact quite the opposite <laughs> I'm always right next to you when you record. Literally. <laughs> and, and especially, well, you know what? Okay. So we have a lot of new listeners into Sovereign Tech. Which, congratulations. That's Thank you. awesome. Thank you. Um, t- tell them, give them a little introduction to Ellen Sovereign. What are, you, what, are you, what are you up to these days? So as the creative director of Sovereign Tech, Ooh, I'm quite glad to be back at my old position. For the last few months, I was um, busy completing coursework for uh, my chemical engineering uh, degree. Mm-hmm. So now that I'm on summer break, I have plenty of time to be back. But the last few months, I've been basically slaving away every moment of the day, just trying to, uh, you know, achieve that milestone. You know, let me let me ask you this. So what do you, what do you prefer? I have a couple questions. And, and we've got great stories, that, or we actually have one big story that plays off of a story you sent me a couple a couple weeks ago, uh, and that I covered in an episode. Um, we're going to get into that. And we're going to do some reviews. It's going to be a good time. 
Let me ask, I mean, do you prefer the term scientist or engineer? Oh, wow. That's a tough one. I mean, <laughs> so the field of engineering that I'm studying, which is bioengineering and chemical engineering, right. like it's sort of a, it, it's a relatively new field, even in terms of engineering. It's a bit of a hybrid though. Wouldn't you say? Yes, very much so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a combination of biological sciences and engineering principles. So, I don't know. I feel like I'm at a crossroads, and I, I love the term scientist because I don't just study, you know, chemistry or biology. I'm, right. like, into literally every field of science that there could be, at least to some degree. I'm not saying I'm an expert, but, like, you know, I can speak the technical language and I understand basic principles. Um, I don't know. So like engineering, like it's very specific. It's very narrow. Scientist, I feel like encompasses more of the explorer in me. Sure. Well, I mean, I think they both apply. I I just didn't know if there's one that you, you preferred, you know, or you just want to use them when they're, when they're, when they work. It really depends on the context. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Because like, if I'm looking for a job, then yes, I'm an engineer. I'm not just a scientist, but in everyday life, I'm a scientist. I love investigating things. Like that's the basis of science is like questioning and and researching. Right. So that's just what I love. Yeah, absolutely. And something I love about you. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I love that about you too. Yeah. Because I know Uh, you are that. Oh, very much so. Absolutely. Exploration, name of the game, you know, inside and outside. Uh, Absolutely. But anyway, um, so, okay, so you're attending university, but that's kind this is this gets in the second question that I have. And this this gets into, well, a lot, of course, what everybody's talking about these days, even though it does seem like it's tapering off a little bit. COVID-19. Now, because of this. You just rolled your eyes. <laughs> yeah, well, it's just, it's been a, bu- like, it started out as a buzzword, and I expected it to, like, taper off, but it hasn't. It's still the buzzword. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. Um, now, this is unique, though. So, this semester, now, are, are you, you, you have your associates. Yes. Okay. And you're going for your. Bachelors. Right. Okay. So that, that's, that, that's your, that's your end game for right now. Yes, you for know, now. Of course, people like us, always growing. Always, you know. Yeah, never settle. <laughs> right, right. I Education mean, like, continues forever. I'm not saying that my bachelor's is the end of the road. Like, maybe I'll go on in my education. I Absolutely. don't know. But um, for now, I think I can be happy just achieving that. Sure. And you're fucking brilliant. So Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but this semester was a unique animal for, uh, for a lot of universities, a lot of colleges, a lot of institutions of learning, regardless of, of stripe or scope. Mm-hmm. In that, now when I said earlier that we've been together literally like all the time, I mean, we're, you know, we're here right now, we're in BDSM Studio 3. We're sitting across from each other. I have my Blue Yeti X in between us and we're both sharing that. Okay. Um, But your desk just runs a straight line off of the studio desk. Yes. And and you're right there and you've been right there because literally feet away. Right. Because you have been doing your courses from home. Yes. You've had to. I, I have had to. And I know I rolled my eyes at COVID-19. It's really affected everything. Sure, right. Like every aspect of life for me. Right. And and I'm sure for everyone is different. Absolutely. But I, I mean, it's just so strange um, not having to drive onto campus and right. walk half a mile to my, uh, you know, the building that I'm taking courses in. With your 80 pound rucksack on your back. And, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, for me, especially is 
as a student, it was um, it was a little saddening because I take several courses every semester that include lab work. Mm -hmm. And the labs at the university that I'm attending are really good. They're designed for research. I mean, it's a major research institute. Sure. Um, so I miss that. Like, I miss getting to play with all those cool toys, you know, and I miss interacting with people like other students, um, even though, you know, we're. Maybe I don't like relate to them as well as I do to you, but right. it's still it, it adds to the richness and variety of life, you know. And even just leaving the house every day, it was a privilege that I took for granted, and now I'm at home with you all the time. And it's not that I don't love it; it's just very different. Yeah. Well, this is a, oh, no, I, and and same. I mean, like I was used to being home fairly alone, you know, uh, uh, quite a bit. But and I love having you home. Uh, but there's a you know, I mean, like something that you. I think we both did like say while we were apart, we would pop on an audiobook, right? Like on your way to class, you'd be listening to an audiobook yeah. or something like that, you know? And there's just like a lot of little things that you sort of stop or you don't stop, but it is, it, it's different. Yeah. It's like, I don't have set time to listen to NPR. So I don't listen to NPR. I don't have a set time to listen to audiobooks or music. Um, so I don't listen to that stuff as much. Right. And we haven't been able to go to the gym. I mean, yeah. at, at all. Uh, no we've gym. been slowly improving our home gym. Mm -hmm. um, but that's been, boy, that's been something. That's been a process. And like even the last few weeks, we haven't had time to do workouts at home. Yeah. Really. Well, you've been so nonstop. Um, I mean, yeah. that's the nature of, of this kind of this level of education, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, is my senior year. I was taking like the capstone projects and everything. Mm -hmm. So, um it, it was just, it was a lot. And I was doing five courses at once, which typically people only do three or four. So it, it was a little more than I'm used to. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. But I think I was able to handle it well because being at home, you're not transitioning between one place and another. So it saves, it like gives you that little added boost of efficiency. Right. You know, where you can just focus on one thing and you don't have to go anywhere. You just sit there and focus. And yeah. if you have to go to the bathroom, it's your own toilet and it's yeah. right there. <laughs> you don't have to walk like 200 meters down the hallway to find a bathroom. Well, you had said this to me, and I think this is interesting to talk about because I don't know how often either my listeners or really any listeners would know what, you know, the education system or parts of the education system are, are like right now, uh, you know, with with the quarant with quarantine yeah, and of everything. Course. Okay. Um, but I mean, you had said there were some advantages, like for example, I mean, your, your, your schedule for your semester, you know, is so insane, so intense. You, uh, you know, you had said to me that you don't know how, if you did have to go to class, you're not exactly sure how you would have been able to fit in getting so much done. Yes, that's very true. Right. Because, because we had to stay home, we weren't able to complete some of the lab work that we had planned for the semester. Mm -hmm. Um, and that was just canceled or right. it was turned into a paper that we had to write about the topic, but we didn't actually have to go to the lab and perform the experiments, um, which is very time consuming. Sure. Um, and it's also sometimes mind numbing. <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, there were just a lot of things that didn't happen because we had to stay home. Um, and also there were plenty of deadlines that got extended because so many students were having challenges right um there was actually quite a few emails sent out from the president and the provost of the university uh addressing this issue like for students that lived on campus they had to pack up and leave and some of them didn't have places to go or they had challenges in moving 
Um, so I imagine there's like so much struggle for a lot of the university population. Um, not so much for me because I have a home that's off campus. Right. Um, so it didn't affect me as much, but I could imagine, you know, like lots of people being displaced and not really having that planned. Well, let me ask on that. I mean, because now you're somebody like we were saying earlier, like you love the scientific process. You love, I mean, you know, you love engaging in, you know, lab work. And I mean, is that fair? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like you like being in those environments and, and I, and I'll just say it. I think that's fucking sexy, but anyway, <laughs> I, I love that. Um, but so now most of your classes were being done or all of them were being done on zoom, right? Yes. Yeah. So, um, a lot of the classes that I had were either lecture and lab or mm -hmm. just lecture. Um, so all of the lecture sections were done via a zoom call and, you know, it was just like me sitting at a desk. I'd plug in the headphones and I'd take notes like usual. But yeah, yeah, it that was a different experience, too, because you don't get to raise your hand and ask questions. Right. Um, Communication's completely different. Uh, You know, like you have to cut off people sometimes and you don't realize you're doing it. Or lately we've had like Wi-Fi issues. So that's a challenge too. Oh yeah. Yeah. The Wi-Fi and Ice Planet Zero sucks here. <laughs> There's no doubt about <laughs> some that. Some days are better than others, yep. but you know, some days it's it's really bad. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, so yeah, there was one professor who took the Zoom calls kind of seriously. Like he recognized that there was security problems with Zoom. Yeah. And started requiring passwords and yep. he'd like email them to us before every uh, lecture, but he was the only one, which I was surprised because I know you talked about on your show a few weeks ago, how zoom has major security issues. Yeah. yeah. And some of which they're solving, but yeah. Yeah. But there are a lot of instances of zoom bombing and like people saying, or like showing porn on people's screens. Yeah, 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 yeah. And like yeah. saying lewd things about the professors. Yeah. Um <laughs> Yeah, there's just a lot of bad stuff happening and um I was amazed that he was the only one in the university that really was concerned about that happening. Yeah, yeah. That, well, so that leads me, I mean, part of my question here, which is how do you feel the rest of the student body like handled this? I mean, do you think cuz this would seem to be and and I and I think I talked about this on a recent Sovereign Tech that like employers who are using Zoom to communicate or a lot of these things like they 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 are asking hey okay while while you're on the clock you need to leave your camera your webcam on at wow. all times okay because they think people have a, a penchant to uh, you know to slack off right of course um, I mean. Like I, like I was asked, like I was saying earlier, you love, you know, the education, the, the lab, pro the scientific process, the lab process, all that. I love okay. digging into the learning. Right. But now your, your, your peers, uh, <laughs> would you, how, what, how do you think they handled it? You know, because you, you are an exceptionally abnormal. And I say that in the most beautiful, respective way, you are an exceptionally abnormal person. How do you think the normies, uh, you know, handled, handled this? Well, first of all, thank you. That's a huge compliment. <laughs> uh, I don't say that about many people. <laughs> and secondly, um, the peers, 
uh, at least as far as I could see. Um, so there was one class that I was taking that was very small, and everybody in the class was friends with each other. Yeah. Um, so in that course, which was special because I was actually taking it through a smaller uh, local college, mm-hmm. um, where where people are far more personable with each other. Sure. And I think that sort of lent to a relationship where everyone felt comfortable having their cameras on and their microphones on throughout most of the lectures that we had. Right. Um, and they talked to the professor as if she was their friend, you know? Um, so it was more like an equitable relationship between everyone. So in that course, everybody paid attention and they were attent- They were attentive and, you know, they interacted. Um, albeit... Some people were literally smoking weed on camera during that course. <laughs> I saw a bong. I saw quite a few vaporizers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but in my other uh, courses, the larger university courses that have like anywhere between 37 and 80 participants in any Zoom call, um, that I don't know. I'm fairly certain that lots of people didn't show up to those, but were relying on the um, the recording to be posted later. Ah, because, okay. like, there was one lecture I had that was at 8 a.m. And who wants to get up that early when you're staying at home all the time? Yep. I'm sure people were sleeping in all, you know, like, until 11 a.m. Just right. so that, because they, were, they had the privilege of watching it at a later time mm-hmm. that was convenient to them. Mm-hmm. Which, I don't know how they handled that, because I couldn't do it. Um I would just lose track of time and lose my schedule and go completely bonkers, not right. knowing what to do. Um, but the there's an added layer of complexity to this because, um, well, because of the extenuating circumstances with COVID-19, we were allowed to choose the pass or fail option instead of a letter grade. So, Which basically means no matter what you did, as long as it was enough to pass, you passed. As long as, like, there wasn't going to be a direct score. Right. It didn't affect your GPA, essentially. Right. So either... But it didn't improve it either. It didn't, like, negatively impact it or positively impact it. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. And for a lot of seniors who did not wish to go on to graduate school or a master's degree or whatever, um, they chose that for classes that they thought they were going to get, like, less than a B or C in. Right. Um, Which kind of lent to uh, people not giving their best efforts, you know, because as long as you are sure that you're going to pass, it doesn't matter if you get a B or a D plus, you know, you're going to pass. Right. Right. So I think a lot of people because of that took the last half of this semester pretty easily. Um, And there were times where we were, I was taking courses where we had to do presentations um, and I'm fairly certain that most people, after they presented, they would just walk away yep. and they would leave, like they would still be logged into the Zoom call. So it would look as if they were present, <laughs> but they weren't actually there. Um, so there was no requirements for you to have your camera on at all times. Like nobody was laying that kind of thing out. No, no, nobody okay. was except once. Um, there was a presentation I was doing for one course where I was required to have my camera on the entire time mm-hmm. and my microphone. And I felt somewhat violated by that, but at the same time, uh, it wasn't something that I couldn't handle. 
Sure. You know, I, I have this like wooden panel thing that I can move and I put that behind me. Right. Um, so that nobody could see my background. And I know Zoom does that. Like they have backgrounds that you can yeah. choose to play like this, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco or like right. the Bahama Islands or something. Right. Um. So anyway, it like that did feel uncomfortable. And I I always have tape over my camera. Well, I thought this was funny. I, I, if you're if you're okay with talking about this for a second, sure. Speaking of the student body, speaking of your peers, <laughs> oh my peers. <laughs> so, because you had to work with them a, a little bit in a different fashion, right? Yes. And maybe at times because you're using Zoom, you had to screen share and so on. Okay? Yeah, which screen sharing is a completely different thing. I, like right. that's a controlled environment. Yeah, absolutely. And and credit to I think Zoom lets you choose. Uh, because I mean, with my clients, I've had to use zoom a lot more recently too, even though I already was, uh, with some of them and that's by their choice, not mine, but you can choose to like only show your browser window, right. Or only a tab and things like this. So you can be pretty, like you say, it can be very controlled, Mm -hmm. but you were telling me that, you know, you're, 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 uh, you're, you're, uh, what would you call them? I don't know. Group members, whatever, uh, or student fellow students, classmates. Classmates, there we go. They, uh, you know, they got a little window, no pun intended. They got a little window into your life, into what you do. We have uh, we have an alien species, and uh, we'll talk oh, more no. about aliens later. <laughs> He's about to crawl over. The we key. have a cat that's crawling around on the table. Captain, <laughs> He's right under the microphone. Do you have something to say, Captain? <laughs> I guess not. Okay. Uh, he's just brushing his tail on the mic. Meow. <laughs> Nope. Oh, he's got a little something. All right. Anyway, <laughs> that might have gotten on the audio. I don't care. Anyway, <laughs> we love them all on this show. Uh, all right. So <laughs> he's so cute. Um, yeah, yeah. Go to your ready room, Captain. There you go. <laughs> His ready room is a little box in the back that he just suddenly fell in love with. I forget what we even got in there. But anyway, it's just this just Amazon box. That's a fairly good size. And uh, maybe we got a box stepper in it or something. I don't know. Anyway. And, uh, and he just fell in love with it. He just fell in love with that box. And I mean, you know, if he ever defecates in there, like take that Bezos, you know, anyway. <laughs> so, um, so that said, uh, so, okay. So they got your, your, your classmates got a little window into your life. And like, they would ask you, as I understand it, they would ask you to turn on video and you're like, hold on. I have to take the sticker off of my camera. They'd ask you to search something when you were kind of team leading and they'd see you using DuckDuckGo. And I mean, what were the reactions to these things? Oh, my Such gosh. simple things, but what were the reactions? <laughs> well, so first I they were saying like, Ellen, why don't you ever turn on your camera? And I was like, well, I have a sticker over it and I don't I just don't want to take the sticker off. It'd be right. too much of a hassle and I'd have to stick it back on afterwards. And I don't have... These are special Tetris stickers. I don't want to waste them, you know? Sure. But really, I'm just making excuses because I don't want my camera uncovered at any point in time. I don't yeah. even want a camera on my laptop. Right on. Uh, Yeah, I just feel like it's a vector for literally anyone to see into the room that I have this laptop. At any given moment. At any moment. Yeah. I don't know when that's going to be. I'm just assuming that it's at all times. Right. Right. Um, you know, I, I listen to what Edward Snowden has to say. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Just I care. Here. Here we go. Oh, that's all right. No, go ahead. All right. Keep going. You so, care. Yeah, I care. Now, what about, about DuckDuckGo? Um, 
DuckDuckGo, I use it to not keep my search history, which I really appreciate. I don't want like an online profile being built up around me because I yeah. search some pretty weird stuff. Um, so anyway, I told them about the camera and they were like, what are you talking about? What are you scared of? What are they going to see? Yeah. You know, it was the typical, like, if you don't have anything to hide, why are you worried? Yeah. Sort of argument. And they thought it was funny. Okay. Um, And then they saw my DuckDuckGo browser and that just blew the lid off it. <laughs> like, what are you scared? Is the CIA's watching you or some hacker is going to get you? And I'm like, well, you know, I don't have to live in fear because I took these precautions, but you should all be concerned. Right. You know, you should all pay attention to these sorts of things. It's important. Yeah. I mean, we were going for a walk and we were talking about it. And I, I mean, and you're telling me this and I'm just like, what? I mean, that. I use this word too often, but I'm just going to run with it. Like, that's terrifying that, you know, because you're, it's not like, you know, you're not going for a business degree and that's no disrespect to people that go for a business degree or the seriousness of a business degree. Okay. But these are people who I think conventionally we would consider a cut above, right? Convention, like they're going into very hardcore sciences, you know, to put it mildly. Sure. All right. I'm not saying anybody going, I mean, whatever you're doing, you're, you're doing it. You're going for your education. Your education is your education. I'm not knocking any, any level of this. Okay. I'm just saying that conventionally, this is how this stuff's perceived. At least they have an additional amount of motivation and ambition from like the baseline, you, you know, because, think. because they're trying to further their education beyond what is required. Right. You would think. And that, and they are going into, again, a very bleeding edge field of science and engineering. Yeah. Okay. All right. When those people don't get, I mean, and what it's not like you're, where, where would you say, and I'm not looking for a pat on the back or anything, because if it's not me, that's fine. Where would you say, you know, you, you what, what made you consider it? Well, you mentioned Edward Snowden about putting, you know, tape over your camera using DuckDuckGo. Like, where'd you get that from? Yeah, well, um, it's hard to say where it originated from. I mean, I've gathered a lot of information over the time. I, I guess it reached a certain critical point at after I started listening to your show where I was like, all right, right I should probably take some action on this. I right, can't just right, right. like know about it and not do anything. Yeah. So I shamed you into it. That's good. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> but okay. Well, I felt empowered after I did it. Sure. Sure. But I mean, I've seen DuckDuckGo ads on television. I mean, it's out there. It's not like the message isn't out there, but these are very, they're, they're not like, it, it doesn't take a, a course in a semester to get you to learn how to put, you know, tape over a, over a camera or a sticker over a camera and use a different fucking search engine. Right. Yeah. And so for them to not grasp this and not want to engage in it like that, 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 that terrifies me that, that, you know, the best and brightest uh, don't understand the importance of these things, but, but go ahead. Well, I, another thing too, is that my classmates are, a few years younger than me. Uh -huh. um, so they might not have as much life experience, but it still doesn't take that much time living in the modern world to see like a handful of stories where someone's camera was taken over. Right. Or like, you know, somebody was had their personal information stolen. So, you know, these are things that you you hear about from time to time and you're like, wow, that's scary. But once you hear it enough times, you start wondering like, you know, is this going to happen to me? Yeah. You know, it's, it's really, it, it it's a, 
in the future. Okay. I see this going one of two ways. I'm sure there are more, there are always more than two ways, but I see this going one of two ways. You're either going to, or people, not you, but people in general. Okay. Young people. They're either going to just in the future have to fucking accept that everybody, and I mean everybody, and I don't care even if you're sitting in the pews, you know who you are. Everybody's a freak, okay? Uh, you know, the marriage bed is undefiled. I know you're defiling it. But <laughs> and I don't mean you, Ellen. I mean, well, I mean, we do our fair share of defiling all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Oh, baby. <laughs> but we don't have any pretensions about it. No, 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 no. We're totally open. In fact, frankly, it's a God. You want to talk about miracles. It's a goddamn miracle that we even have two free hours where we're not, uh, you know, doing the horizontal polka to even record a podcast here. All right. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to talk about what was happening last night in the middle of town, but no, no. <laughs> well, oh shit, a car's coming. I mean, that, that was happening. Anyway, okay. All right. Every, so this goes one of two ways. Either everybody just admits that they're a fucking freak or, or, and this is the scary part, or they get controlled because you know what? That picture you took at that party that you went to when, you know, now it's there for the entire internet to remember for all time. And that's going to affect you if the more the social mores don't change. Now, social mores have dramatically changed, admittedly, even in just the past 10 years. Um, but, you know, if, if that doesn't change, I mean, this stuff is going to come back to haunt all of these people because they didn't even take the simple actions that you take, Ellen. And, and, and not that you're a simple person. I'm just saying that they're basic actions. And another thing, I never store photos on the cloud. I use a hard drive. Oh, yeah. yeah Everybody yeah. remembers the fappening. <laughs> exactly. Well, no, no. You remember it. I remember it. Sovereign Tech remembers <laughs> it and brings it up often. But most people, I think they've totally forgotten about it. Even the fucking celebrities. I guarantee you they, they don't they don't even bother thinking about it. Yeah. I don't know what's going on with this generation. I mean, they just feel so comfortable leaving their cameras on when they're walking around their house. Like one kid walked into his sister's bedroom and showed us all his sister's dirty bedroom, said hi to her, and then left and said, yeah, that was my sister. And I was like, that's not cool. You can't just walk into someone's room while your camera's on while you're on a Zoom call and show her bedroom off to and the entire fucking internet. Yeah, they don't care. No. Uh, uh, see. It's just like privacy is, does not compute with them. It's not I, a thing. I don't, I don't. And, and, and I try to figure out like, what's the mindset behind this? Is it just because it's just what they consider to be normal? I can't imagine that because privacy is a biological, uh, it's not a process, but it, it's a byproduct of biological processes in my opinion. Okay. Nobody likes to be watched. Nobody likes to be watched. No, I don't want to be judged while I'm, on the toilet, right, you know, <laughs> right. I mean, if, if now, if you're choosing, con you know, consciously that you want to be watched and you're into that, okay, that's different. You know, if you're exactly. an exhibitionist, fine. Mm -hmm. But in general, people act differently when they're being watched. We just know this. This is just humans across the board. It doesn't, it, it doesn't matter who or what or where, you know? Um, and so I'm trying to figure out I, all I can imagine is that there is some hope that they garner some kind of celebrity them. I mean, that, that, that's that's one of the conclusions I've come to is that must be what drives this is that they are hoping that they're going to do something really, I don't know, stupid or somehow amazing, though I can't imagine that on camera that's 
going to get them, I don't know, a viral tweet. I, I mean, Maybe. what, what, what do you mean, think's behind it? I think that's looking a little too far into it. For ah. some for some people, yes. Uh-huh. Um, but I think for the majority of people, uh, like, like who I was just referencing, you know, my classmates, um, I think they feel so comfortable having their lives completely exposed all the time like that because that's how it's always been for them. You know, so you like, think it is that? See, that- I, I think they've spent their entire lives with cameras around them and microphones and the internet and interconnected devices, and it's so normal. It's like an extension of their body. I think they've been completely acclimated to it. it, it it's it's impossible for me to fathom. I mean, because, I, yeah, I I just. Well, you didn't grow up like that. No, no, thanks, Satan. Uh, I mean, I I grew up without the internet. I mean, it kind of existed, but like, again, I, I always say the internet didn't enter the homes really in, in a, in a practical usable way where you could actually spend hours on it. I want to say it didn't really show up until like 95. So or- I'm not going to say that that makes a huge difference. I mean, anybody can learn to have safe mm-hmm. practices online, Yep. but I think it, it comes down to like the level of concern and the feeling of safety, like they don't feel that those bad things are going to happen to them. You know, it's like people who have a few drinks and then get into their car and drive off because every time they've done that previously, they've been fine. What's to say that this time is any different? Yeah. yeah. See that, that that's a problem, you know, that, that we never, that so many of our species, I'll use that lightly. Uh, that so many, um, you know, they like they don't plan. They they don't they don't think things ahead of time, and they basically just take actions until they find until you know the the the, the handle of the pan burns them. And yeah. I hate to think that that's how we have to learn because that is a no disrespect to animals. That's an animalistic way of learning. Certainly, it's it's literally like being trained. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that speaks to a very broad problem that there's no way we're going to solve here, but, or at least not in one episode. That's for damn sure. But, uh, that, that all of that, like this has really been COVID-19 overall has been a learning experience. And I think it's shown a lot of society's true colors. Uh, and, and, and certainly we're, we're learning a lot. <laughs> and, and, and I mean, even just in what, like you've, you've told me about, um, and what you've experienced, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's really, and, and a lot of it's not good. And, and also I'm not seeing, I was kind of hopeful that there would be like really dramatic changes where people would start caring about all kinds of things, caring about what matters, you know, maybe not caring so much about money, maybe, maybe caring more about privacy, maybe caring more about um, planning ahead. So, you know, if something really, really terrible happens, you know, like that, that you could survive it and so on. But no, it just brings out, it sounds like it just brings out the, uh, the, the animal. And, and I don't, I don't like using that word in the pejorative because usually I use it in the positive, but in this case, it brings out the, uh, our worst instincts. Well, it does seem like people are learning to plan as far as disinfecting goes and paying well, attention true. to the people microbial world. More. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's not as if people understand the nature of microbes and viruses. Uh-huh. Like 
Uh, so, for example, a virus can be killed with any sort of soap. It doesn't matter whether it's antibacterial, antimicrobial. Right. Just soap in general dissolves the lipids that contain the protein that is a virus because it's mm-hmm. not really a living thing. Um, it's just like a simple shell of genetic material. So, like, any soap is going to get rid of it. And yet, like, hand sanitizer and cleaning solutions and all, like, literally everything is just disappearing off the shelves. Right. Or at least it was for the longest time. Right. Um, now, fortunately, like, things are starting to show back up on the shelves. Yeah, be a little more on, on the normal availability yeah. side. Yep. So, I'm just saying, like, people are responding to this and they're starting to plan ahead. Um, and it... Not that they've, like, really educated themselves on, like, how to do this. Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't make that assumption. Mm -hmm. Um, I think people are just going to, like, the strongest, most sure method of of making sure that, like, everything is completely clean. Um, But it is unfortunate that it took such a dramatic event for people to start being concerned about this. Right. Regardless of the reality around the the event, it's really... Yeah, absolutely. It, it is a shame. You know, something I was thinking about this. Did, did you have a, a comment you want to make there? No, go for okay. it. Okay. I was thinking about this. Like what, how can people get more educated on this? Because, you know, people need education on this across the board. Okay. Because you got people who think this is all fake, a cons- you know, a giant uh, a nefarious conspiracy, right? Then you have people who just, you know, if they, they think it's real, they're not taking it seriously enough and they don't have enough knowledge to understand exactly what the news is telling them. And bottom line being, regardless of where you are, say, in some of that spectrum, okay, most people don't have a really solid foundation of even the most basic medical knowledge. And I think that would help cut through a lot of the crap that you see online or that you hear in the news or however you encounter this information is if you had just a basic medical knowledge and I was thinking like, how can we get people to get into that? You know, and, and, you know, as a species speaking of, I guess maybe, I mean, getting beyond our animal side a bit, but you know, getting closer to it as well as a species, we're, we're big on storytelling, you know, like that's, that's what we do. That, that That's, it's kind of our, uh, you know, art, I think, is at the core of human consciousness, whether we everyone wants to admit that or not, or whether or not we've, you know, uh, uh, been able to quantify that. Um, it does appear to be so. And because the first things that we do that stand the test of time is, you know, like cave art. Right? Yeah. And storytelling is a, is a way to pass on knowledge and experience without someone having to go through it themselves. Right, right. So we have a very, I mean, we live, one of the technologies that we have, in fact, we already mentioned it, like listening to audiobooks, right? That's an amazing thing for a lot of reasons, you know, Uh, and you don't have to do it as audiobooks, but I mean, I think that's an advantageous way to listen to things quickly because you can usually listen faster than you can read. Um, Also, I think we've been telling, as in speaking to each other, stories for thousands of years. It's practically a part of our genetic makeup at this point. That's basically what we're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I think it's part of the reason podcasts are so popular and, you know, have been just steadily growing in popularity. But I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know, if people would, and we're going to talk about this a little later on, actually, because we're going to do a movie review for a Michael Crichton or based off of a Michael Crichton novel who was one of the best 
as far as authors go, I think of all time, certainly in the 20th century. Um, we're going we're gonna to do a review of the Andromeda strain. That's that's coming up, and I think that's 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 uh, relevant much to to what we're talking about here. But I think that if people read Michael Crichton books, like his more scientific work, or like Robin Cook novels, right? If they just like read, I think if they read or listened to novels that had such, because like when you watch the Andromeda strain, we'll talk about this later. In fact, it's even won awards in the past, just in this century. And that movie's from 1971 and the book as well. Um, it's won awards in this century for being the most scientifically accurate presentation on film. Like that, that's literally an award that it's I won. couldn't argue with that. Right. And it's a great movie. Well, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but it's a great film. Okay. And, and it's considered one of the greats by most people, you know, and I get that it's a little boring, which probably comes from that scientific accuracy, right? Because, you know, you can't, you're not going to do any, uh, any, anything too flashy, even though there's plenty of flash, I think in that film. Um, but I think you could get people, if you present them with medically accurate, scientifically accurate stories like Robin Cook or Michael Crichton, and there's others too who write this stuff and they do great work. If you could present that to them and just listen to those and like you could integrate from those authors specifically, none of this horse shit on CBS or Netflix that that's just absolutely full of crap and totally, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Not fantasized, but fantastical. Yeah. Fantastical might be a good word for it that, you know, that's meant where the science is meant to merely forward the story and not where the science is meant to be accurate or, you know, if it's even science, but like getting into this hardcore stuff, I think that's a great way that people could just listening to these books, I think can actually build up your foundation of how all this shit works. Um, yeah, it is. Re- it is really challenging, I think, for science fiction when you're listening to it to know what's real science and what's not. Yeah. Unless you already have a background in that area. But certainly the Andromeda strain is one where it's real and you yeah. could listen to it and learn something. Well, that's what I'm saying, particularly like a Michael Crichton or a Robin Cook, where they are, you know, they're recognized for their accuracy. They're they're actually, you know, especially like Robin Cook, you know, they're professionals in their field or were. Um not all these authors are with us anymore. And, you know, I, yeah, I just, I mean, and granted, you know, this stuff changes all the time, but it's like watching Cosmos over and over again. Even if some of the stuff in Cosmos is wrong now or is proved to be inaccurate, you're still getting a beautiful foundation of a lot of scientific concepts that, dare I say, were prophetic at the time, you know, in 1980 or 81 when that came out. Um, I mean, it's still good stuff to know. And, and, but then, and even when you come with the, come up, when you encounter, say the modern uh, information, you can easily just integrate it. Aha, aha, you know, and because you have that, that foundation that's so fucking key. And yeah. So, that's what all of education about is just making those connections. Right. And like learning to recognize something and associate it with something else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the most powerful way for anybody, even if they're not like, you know, somebody who say loves the process like you do, Ellen, you know. I think, I mean, I, I've read Robin cookbooks and uh, cookbooks. <laughs> uh, it's a cookbook. No, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I've read Robin Cook's works or quite a few of them. And I'm not, and, I, and I've readily admitted that like medical science is not my cup of tea as you sip from your own cup of tea. <laughs> delicious uh, green tea. Yeah, delicious. Um, but uh, it's not, you know, but 
I still know that how the value in doing that. And I think it's really helpful. And I, 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 I think that's something that everybody, if they wanted something actionable, what the fuck do I do about this right now? I, again, I don't care what end of the spectrum you sit on, on how you feel about COVID-19 increasing your medical knowledge. And especially in a novel form where they're a thriller or a mystery, because then it's about figuring it out, right? It's not just like X plus Y equals Z, right? No, this is figuring it out, which that's that's the beautiful path of knowledge. Okay. And, and so I, I think this is one of the best things that people could do. You know, go grab some of those books, go watch the Andromeda Street. I mean, hell, if it's a great movie on the matter, fine. But movies often don't present the same uh, 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 accurate or the same detailed, I should say, detailed information like a novel would. Um, but yeah, you don't want to sit down and read a book. Reading a book makes you tired or something like that. Fine. Crank out an audio book, you know, and I, and I, th- I think it'd be a beautiful thing. So any thoughts on that, Ellen? Yeah, no, I agree. Um, As a person who's read the novel and seen the movie now of Andromeda Strain, I would say, you know, the book certainly gives you a lot more detail, but the movie is still uh, an accurate, it represents the novel without distorting it. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we'll talk about that later, but uh, we got a story to get into. Let's do it. Speaking of life and other life. Um, real quick though, what do you, what are you reading right now? What do you, what do you got going on on, on your audiobooks? <laughs> so just earlier today, I was listening to Pale Blue Dot by Pale Carl Dot. Sagan and Androyan. Okay. That's a hell of a book. I, I've, I've read, yeah. I read that a lot. I mean, that, what, that came out like 94, I want to say. I, it, it was a while ago. Yeah, I think it was 94 and it, it's a direct, for people that don't know, it's, it's Build as the direct sequel to Cosmos. So if you loved Cosmos, which we were just talking about, I, I highly recommend this book as well. And I'm sure you would too, Ellen, even though you know, you're not finished with it yet. Yes, I would highly recommend it. Uh, the first few chapters are actually read by Carl Sagan himself, mm-hmm. um, which they're, ac- they're actually old recordings that were discovered. Um, and they were only able to recover a few hours of that audio. Um, so the rest of the book was narrated by Androyan, who was Carl Sagan's spouse. Right, right. Yeah, brilliant stuff. Uh, I actually, that's one where I want the audiobook because, yeah, to hear to hear Carl Sagan, you know, talking, I mean, that's just worth its weight in gold. And, yeah, and this book specifically contains what is called the Pale Blue Dot Soliloquy, where mm-hmm. Carl is talking about, um, you know, the rivers of blood that have been spilled for people to have power over a tiny portion of this pale blue dot. Man, sounds like a dream theater <laughs> song. I don't know about you. Oh, but. yeah. <laughs> There's no one out there to save us from ourselves. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, mm. <laughs> well, that's a great pick. I, I think that's that's uh, that's dynamite. I've been listening to myself. Um, uh, a lot of great courses uh, uh, I've been listening to lately. Um so, well, anyway, we won't get into the details of those, but I'm sure the fruits of that labor will show itself somewhere in the Sovereign Tech universe. But uh, anyway, yeah, why don't we uh, why don't we get into our, our story here? But, you know, quick, just before we do uh, this two hours of Brian and Ellen um, not getting it on is uh, <laughs> is brought to you by Free Talk Live. <laughs> and we really, you know. Got to be something special for us to do that. I know. Jeez. So, but uh, freetalklive.com, Sovereign Tech sponsor. So honored as always to have them as a sponsor throughout 2020. Actually, they re-upped for the entire year as 2019. Our relationship did so well. Um, You got to check it out. 
This is a show that runs seven nights a week, three hours a night. You can go to their website. Okay, now it's on terrestrial radio. It is the number 26 talk show in the United States. It is an open phones call-in show. Your voice can get heard if you want to call in. But you can even just go to their website, go to freetalklive.com, and there is access to over a decade, I believe, uh, I think you can get all of those, of episodes. And again, that's we're not just talking like we're Sovereign Tech, where it's once a week or so. You know, no, no, seven nights a week, three hours a night that you get to go and check out. In fact, if you go a few years back, boy, if you go back to some Friday nights, what are they going to hear, Ooh. Ellen? <laughs> <laughs> I was the host for a few months. Yeah, yeah. They might hear you. And yeah, I'm I, oh much boy. younger me. <laughs> yes, but I remember listening to it. You were absolutely brilliant. Uh, you made Free Talk Live Friday nights a must listen uh, for me. And it, it was dynamite. So you can do Thank you, you. What were the years for that? When you were, oh, was that 2014? Wow. Yes, it must have been like 2014. That? Yeah. Somewhere around there. So, folks, you can go check that out those Friday nights. Um, do you not want them to go and check it out? Your eyes are going wide. I'm blushing. <laughs> no, it's a good no time. they can check it out too. They can also check out when you were a host. Oh, boy. <laughs> you had to bring that up. No, <laughs> no, it was an honor. Uh, yeah, I, I did it for a couple of years. I was on Sunday nights um, and it was a, just a, a great time and an absolute honor. And, you know, who knows what the future holds. But anyway, freetalklive.com you can check out the past the present and the future there and we thank them for sponsoring sovereign tech an absolute honor uh so actually you know ellen i mean it's fair to say like we really kind of both got our uh our audio careers started on that show is, is, is that fair um well it, oh, it was wait. certainly on that network yes. yeah oh no no because you <laughs> did other stuff I, oh yeah. yeah there was a show called ladies and keen yep and then after <laughs> that <laughs> yeah uh what else was uh oh so so ladies and keen then free talk live and then alp and then several other things that were not related to the lrn.fm family but brilliant stuff out there thank you i mean really uh well, anyway, I've, I've, I've touted your work uh, for many years. So anyway, <laughs> it's beautiful that we could, especially now that you're off from uh, school for a little bit. I mean, hell, we can do all kinds of work together. Woo! So you got a nice open schedule there. Yeah, but it's anyway. going to be a roller coaster this summer. Hell yes. Uh, <laughs> if you can get us behind the mic. Uh, but anyway. <laughs> all right. Um, so you shared a story with me uh, a few weeks ago. And then a couple episodes ago, I decided to, or, you know, I, I was going to cover it. I mean, if you send me something, I'm going to talk about it. But uh, it had to do with particularly, and this story is making the rounds now. Mm -hmm. um, I keep seeing it pop up in varying feeds and like someone talks about it again and talks about it again. That particularly three videos that the United States Navy considers to be, yeah, we don't know, you know, it, it's, it's UFO footage. Of course, they now call it UAPs, which I think is a brilliant move. I already talked about all that. Yeah, give it some freshness. Yeah, yeah. You know, get it, get get it rid away of the from baggage. some of the baggage. Exactly, yeah. right. But these are, you know, for lack of better, you know, to, to, to introduce them quickly, these are, you know, videos of UFOs that they just don't know what it is, you know, and they admit it. Like, no, we, we can't explain this. And they're, it's something. It's legit, but we don't know what the fuck it is. Um. And so, understandably, that's making a lot of news because, you know, it's not just, you know, some restaurant uh, or some uh, hotel chain owner talking about it. It's actually, uh, you know, or it's not Jimmy Carter. 
it's actually, you know, like the U.S. Navy who, who has to do something with this data and has to take it seriously. Um, but, you know, fuck the Navy. Anyway, there uh, was a particularly interesting story that after, let's see, so that was May 9th, I think. Just hours after I released the episode of Sovereign Tech where I covered this, Vox, V-O-X, they did a story where they interviewed a guy, uh, Alexander Went, okay, uh, about basically these three videos and the seriousness of this all, okay? And I shared it with you, and you read it. You loved it. You loved the interview. Yeah, and also he did a TED Talk prior to the interview. Right. Um, that was about this story specifically and it he was brilliant yeah he's just really uh yeah he cut to the core of what was going on yeah yeah so uh the link is in the show notes for the story that we're going to cover we're going to talk about we're going to go over and in embedded in that story is the ted talk um that you can check out so if people want to listen to that as well and i also recommend it you you do ellen yes Uh, yeah yeah uh, Alexander went clearly brilliant guy and humble when he needs to be, which I think is, uh, I think is great. Uh, yeah. And he approaches it from a totally logical standpoint. Sure. You know, he doesn't make any assumptions when he's going into it. Yeah. And I think as we go through this, what's interesting is he mentions a lot of things that basically I had said as well, uh, in when I, when I covered the story that you sent me, uh, for, you know, on that episode of sovereign tech. So anyway, the, the, the title of the Vox story is it's time to take UFOs seriously, seriously, like seriously twice. Um, Alexander Wendt is one of the most influential political scientists alive. Here's his case for taking UFOs seriously. Uh, so I'm going to read it here and then we'll kind of break in and comment. And if you want to just cut in at any point, Ellen, you just... You know, All right, just, you I'll know, swing with my sword. Free talk live rules. If you, if you want to get on the radio, you got to open your mouth, right? <laughs> <laughs> I know you know how to do this. You're told. Don't be modest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so here we go. Uh, the Pentagon recently released three videos of UFOs recorded by the Navy, one taken in 2004 and the other in 2015. The videos, which first leaked a couple of years ago, show, well, it's not exactly clear. There are various objects, two of which look like aircraft, spinning through the sky and moving in ways that defy easy explanation. As the images bop across the screen, you can hear the pilot's excitement and confusion in real time as they track whatever it is they're seeing. I'm I'm not what you would call, and this story, by the way, is by uh, Sean, um, Sean Illing, who is also interviewing Alexander Wendt. Uh, so that's who the, the the first person perspective is here. I'm not what you would call a UFO enthusiast, but the videos are the most compelling I've ever seen. They seem to confirm, at the very least, that UFOs are real. Not that aliens exist, but that there are unidentified objects buzzing around the sky. Now, do I think aliens are real? Yeah, probably. Are they flying spaceships into our atmosphere? Who the hell knows? The best anyone can say is that there's a non-zero chance that some of these UFOs were made by non-human hands, and that, I'd argue, is reason enough to talk about them. But it's barely cracked the news cycle. Even in a pandemic, you'd think we'd have a little time for UFO talk. So in an attempt to force a UFO conversation into the public discourse, I contacted Alexander Went, a professor of international relations at Ohio State University. Went is a giant in his field of IR theory, but in the past 15 years or so, he's become an amateur UFOologist. 
anyway, they talk about his articles and TED Talk all linked here. Uh, Went is about the closest thing you'll find to a UFO expert in a world in which UFOlogy isn't a real silence. Uh, like other enthusiasts, he spent a lot of time looking at the evidence, thinking about the stakes, and theorizing about why extraterrestrials wouldn't visit Earth in the first place. Uh, in this conversation, anyway, which has been lightly edited for clarity, we discuss why scientists refuse to take UFOs seriously, why he thinks there's a good chance ETs are behind the aircraft in the videos, and why he believes the discovery of extraterrestrial life would be the most significant event in human history. So here's Sean Illing. Do you believe in extraterrestrial life? Alexander Wendt. Well, it's kind of like asking if somebody believes in God. It's just an odd question. I certainly believe that it's very likely there's extraterrestrial life somewhere in the universe, and I suspect even most scientists might agree that now with that now. The real question is, are ETs here? And that's obviously a much more debatable question. So I want to stop on that, uh, Ellen. And now, first off, I like that they're, I mean, on Sovereign Tech, you know, we like to be very specific with terms. And uh, I will often try to, introduce or reintroduce terms that maybe have fallen out of fashion that I think need to be back in fashion. And when I first talked about these three videos, that was one of my primary points to get into is that stop using the word aliens. We need to say extraterrestrials. Okay. Or if yeah, you these think, aren't people coming from Mexico. Ex yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also even within the hypotheses of say UFOlogy, which even then I like that. I like, I'll agree with the Navy on this. That UAPs, I think, is a great term to start using to get, like you said, to get rid of that baggage. Okay. Um, so I think using UAPs, using the term extraterrestrials, which I'm glad they're being specific here, and we'll find out why they're being specific because, like I laid out in my episode, there's a couple other possibilities if this stuff is non-human hands, right? Like Sean was, was saying. You have uh, interdimensional terrestrials, right? or what they call ultra-terrestrials, there's other terms, um, but you have what's called the interdimensional hypothesis, the IDH, okay? Uh, which means that they, they're here, but they are on another plane, basically, of existence. They're in another dimension, like something within M-theory or something like that. Or you have crypto-terrestrials, which are basically, you know, we'll use the term aliens in this one case. They're aliens, they're non-human intelligence but they're already like, they're actually, you know, they co-evolved on earth. Like they, they evolved on earth just like humans did. Okay. But they are not human. So you have those th at least three possibilities, you know, to get into. So using the term extraterrestrials, I think is essential in having any kind of intelligent conversation. So the third extraterrestrial is just something that evolved on a completely different planet that is traveled here. That, that would be an extraterrestrial. Right. So right. I, I'm sorry, you just mentioned the two. So yeah, yeah, there, the right. There's extraterrestrial, crypto terrestrial, and I guess we'll say ultra terrestrial or IDH. Yeah. You know. Okay. Um, so, okay. So, so I'm glad that they're, that they're going down that road and they're using the term ETs because we need that to have this conversation, uh, especially around these three videos. What is it? You know, is it human? Okay. If it's not human, then we got to classify very quickly what we're talking about. Um, I mean, even with something as crazy, well, let me ask you this before we go further. I mean, what do you think are the possibilities of the, I think you and I both agree, extraterrestrials, just like Alexander Wendt was saying, yeah, sure, there's probably some 
sapient life out there of in the course. universe somewhere. Like that, that'd be a tough mathematical pull to say there isn't. It'd be utter hubris to say that we are the only intelligent species in the entire universe. Absolutely. Pale Blue Dot would make a great case for that matter, too. Uh, well, I directly <laughs> quoted Carl Sagan just now. <laughs> which is why I brought up the book. But yes, yeah, exactly. So, uh, but now how about how about ultraterrestrials? We'll do we'll do the next two. How about ultraterrestrials? Do you think uh, that's a possibility? This is getting into some weird territory Absolutely. because talking about different planes of existence, those are things that are purely theoretical. Right. Um, there's no way for us to like measure that or have any real sense of what that literally means mm-hmm. because we, I mean, we can only exist in the plane that we exist in. You know, we right. can't we can't cross over to whatever is out there so how are we supposed to study things like that we right. can't except analytically you know theoretically um so so i don't i don't know i mean do i think it's possible yes could i put a percentage to that no okay no that's fair that's fair but it's possible sure. yeah i i would stake more money on either the extraterrestrial or crypto terrestrial okay so so that kind of answers the third question or, or you know the, the with the crypto terrestrials. You think that that is likely? Oh, that there was a species that co-evolved on earth with us yeah. or even evolved previous to the existence of humans and took off. And is maybe, or is still here. And we don't know. I mean, how do you feel mm-hmm. about that? Yeah. Um, I think that there is a possibility that that's happened mm-hmm. and that they're just outsmarting us and able to hide from us. Sure. Okay. Uh, I will, I'll, I'll, I'll tease here. There might be an upcoming user podcast in very short order that might cover some of this. So anyway, I'll drop, I'll drop that tease, but all right, fair enough. So let's go back to Sean Illing and Alexander Wendt here. Uh, Sean Illing, are they here? Alexander Wendt, I think the odds are high enough that we should be investigating it. It's as simple as that. Would you agree with that statement, Ellen? Yes. Okay. Uh, Sean Illing, why would aliens conceal their existence? I know you have theories on this. Alexander Wendt comes in. It's possible they've been here all along. And that, of course, Stanley Breaking in, that gets to the crypto terrestrial aspect, right? Is that, no, they've actually always been here. I mean, they could still be extraterrestrial and always have been here longer than humans have been on the stage. But I think that kind of points in that direction. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that they're still here or that they went and colonized somewhere else in the solar system, but uh-huh. some of them stayed behind, you know? Sure. Sure. Fair. Um, Okay, let me read a little more of Alexander Wendt. And that's something, so it's possible they've been here all along. And that's something that I've been thinking about lately, which is a bit unsettling because it means it's their planet and not ours. They could they could just be intergalactic tourists. Maybe they're looking for certain minerals. It could just be scientific curiosity. It could be that they're extracting our DNA. I mean, who knows? I have no idea. All I know is if is that if they are here, they seem to be peaceful. Uh let, let me let me let me read this to Sean Illing here. You've you've thought about this a lot, Alex. You must have a hunch as to which of those scenarios is most likely. Let me read the next part. Alexander Wendt, I think if they are here, they've probably been here a very long time. That's my guess. And look, there are medieval woodcuts that seem to show UFOs. There are UFO stories in the Bible, apparently, or at least stories that are interpreted that way. So I think they've probably been here a long time if they're here. Now I mentioned the woodcuts. Um in in actually the last episode that I talked about this. And so it's interesting that he brings that up. The biblical stories, I mean, I did a review of uh, uh, Joseph Blumrich's, who is a NASA scientist. I did a review of his book, uh, The Spaceships of Ezekiel, 
which probably is covering what Alexander Went is is talking about. Um, but he's, I, I thought it was brilliant, and I don't think he went enough in the crypto zoo, uh, cryptozoology. That's a whole other thing <laughs> in the in the crypto terrestrial uh, vein in saying, you know, I, I mean, I I think this 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 sentence in particular is really striking. What if it's their planet and not ours? And that's something like even I'm sure Sagan didn't even get into pale blue dot. Like, I don't recall necessarily that that kind of idea coming up. But like, it's one thing for, you know, Sagan to make make the argument, well, humanity's not not as special as we like to claim to, that we are. But I mean, like, what if this isn't even our planet? I mean, it, it's ours as in we evolved here. Of course, some people would argue against that even. OK, but and that oh, we could go there. But, you know, it, like that, we're not the top of the food chain on this planet. How, how do you feel about that, Ellen? Yeah, I prefer it being stated that way as opposed to saying that the planet belongs to any one species. Ah, it mm-hmm. belongs to every species that inhabits here and has existed here for, you know, as long as they've been alive. You right. know, evolution has given rise to millions of different species. Right. Who's to say that it belongs to any one of them? So, like, if there is a more intelligent species that predates humanity, perhaps they, you know, feel... I don't want to say that like the planet belongs to them, but like they could be staying here out of a sense of like protection for the planet because we aren't doing it any favors. We're just fucking it up left and right. That's a very Keanu Reeves day. The earth stood still. Have you ever watched that? The Keanu Reeves one? No. no. Okay. We'll have to watch that at some point, but go ahead. Um. So anyway, yeah, maybe they are, you know, higher on the food chain than us. And in that case, um, I, I would actually feel somewhat grateful if that were to be discovered to be true, because um, that would, and I think they get into it later on in this article, but that would essentially uh, make military and government powerless. But doesn't that lead, oh, I have a couple things I want to get on here. Okay. Hold, hold that military note. All right. But the, I, I love your point because I think it's a, it's a failing on our part to think of now the earth is our home in the universe. Yes. Because it's where we, we have, I mean, but something being your home doesn't mean that it's yours, right? Doesn't mean that it solely belongs to you, you know, Um, just like, okay, just because, you know, six year old little Johnny doesn't pay the bills for the house. That's his home all the same. And he has as much, you know, right to be there, I think, as anybody, you know, does. Okay. So, you know, the earth, I I think that's a really, really key point that a lot of people miss on is that we shouldn't think of the earth as like ours, as our property of some kind. It belongs to, it's it's a giant ecosystem of its own and every part of it is just as important as the other. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And for successful survival, we have to learn to co-inhabit with all of these species that live here. Right. Like we can't blast away every blade of grass, every tree, every insect and bird and fish. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that would kill us. Right. Ultimately. Um, and you know, we only inhabit, you know, a small part of the planet. We're just on the surface. There are things that fly. There are things that swim. Um, you know, there's microbes that inhabit every square inch of our body. Right. You know, the, the, we are not even the most close to the most populous. Yeah. I mean, the best thing you can, you can consider it is like that you somehow, I don't know, earn the right to exist here. Oh, sure. You know, because I mean, it's war of the worlds, right? 
sure, the Martians come, but guess what? The common cold just wiped you out and you're done, you know, and because you, you had yet to like, to, to basically, you didn't evolve here. You didn't earn the right, whatever that takes to get there, you know, to be able to even just exist on this plot of land. Well, we do by design fit perfectly on this planet and we can, we can co-inhabit with everything else that's here. Right. Right. Um, but that's totally different than the earth being our property. Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so I think you raise a really great point there. Now, the other thing that you got into though, is how that, that militaries would be meaningless in the face of this, uh, this other life form, a greater intelligence, a greater intelligence. But I worry, like, are they pulling the strings? Like this is, I did an episode in 2019 where I, I talked about the, what's called the, the zoo hypothesis or even the quarantine hypothesis, which has nothing to do with COVID-19, uh, which is that, okay, why aren't, why don't we see the aliens? It's because, oh, they know we're here and they're making sure we don't ever leave in there or they're, or they're, they're like uh, maybe doing something closer to the prime directive or something like that, where they don't interfere. And basically this area of space is closed off. Okay. And that's why we don't encounter them. It's not like they don't know it's because they're making sure that we don't encounter them. Um, and my whole problem with that was that like, holy shit, if that's true, no, please, uh, uh, interfere. <laughs> okay. Stop these fucking wars, this petty bullshit of so many people dying. Like, please come, come, come and stop it. Cut it off. All right. Or at the very least make your presence known so that it puts the kibosh on the whole idea. Well, you maybe know? that's what they're trying to do. <sighs> is make their presence known. I mean, you know, I can understand the Lord works in mysterious ways. Right? <laughs> I don't know. But you know, I, I think it's understandable that an alien species of greater intelligence would not want to interfere one with our evolution as a species or as a culture or, um, uh, and they also would not want to like take on the burden of our stupid decisions. But you're right. It, it it does seem somewhat heartless that they don't intervene and teach us better ways of handling things. Yeah. And, you know, I thought it was really great that he made the point early on that if they are here, they're peaceful. They would have to be if they've coexisted with us for so long. Yeah, this is this is a an older idea in UFOlogy. And I'll use that term for for all the baggage there, too, is that. If you can travel the stars, if you can go, you know, if you can go faster than light or do whatever it takes to get from one star system to another, the argument goes is that you inherently must be peaceful. You must have made peace because you could never in a warlike culture, this is the idea that you could never in a, in a war, uh, yeah, in a war torn culture or civilization build up the resources or be able to take the time to get to here. I don't know that I a hundred percent believe that because it's easy to argue that the atomic age would not have happened without, or at least it could have happened later on, but it wouldn't have happened with such rapid development as it did during world war two. Right. And I mean, there's, there's, and obviously I'm as anti-war as they come. I'm the most peace loving guy. Actually, you know, I, I hate to say it. I'm the most peace loving guy. I know. I wish that weren't true. Uh, and I don't say that as like some kind of boast, like I'm measuring against other people, but I'm just saying, don't confuse me that I'm saying war is a good thing in any way. It's not, and it's never necessary and it's never justified. Okay. Um, there is no such thing as a net positive that comes out of war that, that I, I just don't believe that for a second. So don't confuse me, but I, I don't, I don't know 
that I could imagine a war where like potentially something that resembles a very fast engine. Cause I also don't think fast and light travel really occurs or is possible, but a really impressive engine that could get you from a to B very quickly in the universe uh, or fairly quickly. I could imagine that getting developed in, in a war, in wartime. And so I, I don't know that I necessarily like buy, buy that, but um, do, you, do you have anything to say on that? Um, I think we should continue reading the story because a lot of this is really addressed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair, fair. Okay, good point. So here we go. Uh, reading on with, with Sean Illing. Uh, we're having this conversation because you've been very public about calling out a taboo against studying UFOs. What's your claim here? Alexander Went? It's very simple. There are things going on in the sky that are strange and do not have an obvious explanation. These are UFOs, and like any other unidentified phenomenon, human beings are curious creatures, and normally scientists will rush out to study whatever we find fascinating or puzzling. But in this case, scientists won't touch it with a 10-foot pole, and that's the taboo. So even though the Navy is now saying, quote, hey, we've got UFOs on film, and here they are, end quote, the scientists are still not going to study them. So there seems to be something blocking the scientific community from engaging this phenomenon, even though anything else else even remotely this interesting would generate limitless research dollars. Uh, then Sean, Sean Illing says, is this some kind of conspiracy of silence? How does a taboo like this take hold in the first place? Alexander went, we argued in our 2000 academic paper that the modern state is what we call anthropocentric. Basically, that means human beings are sovereigns. In ancient times, it was the gods or nature that was thought to rule over everything. Now it's human beings. And this principle is embodied in the state. If you call that into question, if you call into question that the state is not the only potential sovereign here, the whole legitimacy of the state is called into question. Woo! Yeah! Wow! Hit that note, baby. Uh, not going to say that Alexander Went is an anarchist, but bingo. Like, I, I think this, he touched on, I want to keep reading more, but he just touched on a huge mental roadblock. Not just in the minds of the state, in the minds of everybody. You know, like, oh, no, you know, like if there's something superior other than maybe God, but then, you know, Christians have the convenience of Romans 13 where they can say, well, you see, but God put the state in place. So, you know, we, we got it. We got it. We got to follow our leaders. I mean, it's just it's how it is, you know. Uh, yeah, like a lot of this going down these trains of thought calls into question authoritarianism across the board, which I think is kind of what you were hinting at there, Ellen, a, a little, or what you're part of what you were getting at earlier, perhaps. Yes. Yeah, um, exactly. I was referencing that. And like, I understand why people would not want to address something that might call into question the, the sovereignty of the state, uh -huh. um, because then you have to face the cold, harsh realities of the universe. Right. That is not designed for us, but we were, you know, sort of designed for this planet. Um, but the, there's so much more of existence to than what we are familiar with. Right. Including that great unknown that is out there. And so many people are uncomfortable with facing that sort of unknown. And, you know, like their imagination will run wild with what sort of dangers they face, mm -hmm. um, including like these extraterrestrials. Most people just assume like they're here to suck our blood and take our <laughs> brains or something. Yeah. <laughs> They don't want our genetic material. We can't assume that. But most people do because that's, you know, it's frightening to them to face that unknown. Um, and it's it feels safe to, like, have that defensive position of, like, oh, well, the great state will take care of me. There's a great military that will defend me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if there's a force that's even greater than that, um, 
then I guess you're just going to have to learn to live with that unknown quantity and and adapt to it. Sure. And that's hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have things like the Brookings Report from the 60s, which was a government, you know, which came out of uh, government funding to a think tank and was presented to the government basically saying, okay, if we find, we go to the moon or we go X, Y, Z, when we go wherever, and if we find evidence of extraterrestrial life, if we find evidence of uh, extraterrestrial sapient life, how do we handle that? And the Brookings Report very clearly states, you don't tell anybody. Like, like you, you keep it quiet because you don't know what this is going to, this is going to upend civilization if you tell people. And they base that, admittedly. Like, it's not like there is, what Alexander went is saying here, it's not like there isn't precedent for it. Because they base it on, okay, you know, like cargo cults, like for when, you know, just a, a quote unquote, and I put this in quotes, an advanced culture. Now that's relative. Okay. Technologically. Or that's advanced. subjective. I should say. Yeah. A, let's say a technologically advanced culture shows up to a less advanced culture. It's disruptive. Generally it's disruptive. Okay. And yeah. Are you referencing like in world war two where supplies were dropped off to like yep. remote islands? Free food. Yeah, and the people started building, like, statues of airplanes. Yeah, or, like, bamboo airplanes. Yeah. Uh, you know, hoping that it would bring back the free food. You know, yeah, that's the cargo cults. And so, you know, it's not like they're unjustified in thinking that that's what would happen. You know, and are people stupid? I don't, well, you tell me. Can we get everybody to use DuckDuckGo and respect their own goddamn privacy? Nope, not even the scientists, Right. To be scientists. Or to, yeah, or would be scientists. Sure. Yeah. Or to be. Yeah. That's a better way of putting it. So it's not like, it's, it's not like, again, that they don't have uh, uh, evidence that this, that this would be a problem, you know? And what Alexander went is saying, yeah, I, I don't doubt it. You know, that doesn't now, again, we say that it's a problem. It being a problem is also relative, you know, is all, or is also subjective. Uh, because it might end up being a very good thing, you know, even if there is a, uh, a brief period of, of some, uh, some, some social upheaval and turmoil, but regardless, um, let me read a little bit more here. Uh, so, so the whole worldview of the modern state is very vulnerable to the UFO question. You can't even ask the question because it raises the possibility that there could be ETs here and that would just blow everything wide open. Now, I want to be clear here, because before anybody thinks that I am worried about, like, my world changing in some great way, okay, because I am notorious for saying, no, I don't think aliens, have, I don't, <laughs> I don't think ETs have ever been to this planet, um, and I don't think that they're re- responsible for the UAPs or the UFOs. Um, I'm an anarchist. I don't, I don't even, I think the state's completely unethical. So, like, in my mind, there's no roadblock. If, if people want to say, oh, Brian's got a roadblock, then it's why he doesn't think aliens are out there or why he doesn't think ETs are out there. No, 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 no. <laughs> if they are out there, please come. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Take right. us away. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Oh, th- you know, th- I mean, that gets to a whole other thing, too. None of this would really be a problem if people who, let's just say, people who do have their fucking act together. Okay. And I don't I don't want to sound uh, I don't want to I don't want to sound braggadocious. And suggesting that oh, yes, I you do. do. Come like, on. All right, I do. Yeah. So you and I have our act together. <laughs> if we just had somewhere to go, 
you know, where like, it's like, it's like in Aldous Huxley's, uh, it's in, like in Brave New World. Mm-hmm. Okay. At the end of the book, they offer the guy, they're like, okay, well, we've got this island for people like you. All right. We won't kill you. Okay. Just, you can't be here because you're going to, you're going to fuck everything up. All right. But we've got this island where all the smart people go and you can just hang out there. You know what I mean? And, and like, well, can I just have my island? All right. Like, fine. If people want their safety net, they want their fucking nanny state, they want their religion and whatever. Okay. But can I just have somewhere to go? And that's the problem is there's nowhere to go, you know, like, like on, on earth to, to get away from it. If there was just somewhere to go. Okay. You, you know what I mean? Like have all the fucking, oh, I, I, I shouldn't say that because I care about people. I was going to say, have all the fucking power you want. If all the fucking tyranny you want, whatever, you know, you do it over there, but just give me some place that I can go. That's the same attitude of the ETs. Ah. (laughs) Now you understand that. Ah. (laughs) Well. (sighs) See, let the virus destroy itself. (laughs) Ah, woo! (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Anyway. I'm going to keep reading. All right. <laughs> yes, please. I love right. this story. It's such a good story. It is. It's a great conversation that it brings to Sean Illing. Uh, that's an argument for why states might not be interested in this question, but it doesn't explain why non-state actors or the private sector isn't particularly eager to study this. Alexander went. Now that's a very good point. In our paper, we only dealt with states. What's interesting lately is that states seem more willing to engage with this than scientists. I think there's a hubris in the scientific community, a belief that human beings are the most intelligent species on the planet, and it's very hard to come to grips with the idea that if there are aliens here, they're obviously much smarter than we are. Yeah. (laughs) I've received a lot of emails from individual scientists in response to my TEDx talk, and all of them said the same thing, which is, thank you. We or quote, thank you. We wish we could study this, but we can't because our lives depend on getting grants from the government and other research institutes. And if anybody gets worried that we're interested in UFOs, boom, they won't get a cent and their careers will be in the tank, end quote. But I still think some scientists, most scientists believe this is all nonsense anyway. And that's frankly disappointing. Ellen, do you have anything to say on that? Yeah, I mean, if you're being funded, I I totally understand the fear of being discredited as a scientist Mm -hmm. if you study something that most people think uh, is mythology. Yeah. Um, So so I can relate to that. uh, But I think that especially given this evidence that's being presented supposedly from a reputable source, um, I think that, you know, people should consider this you know it's been part of our mythology for a long time i mean mm-hmm. there some of the most famous movies are alien movies you know right. right um and now we're having at least a few videos released and that's not to say that there's probably there's a whole stockpile of these i'm sure right um but if the if a government institution is saying that these things are real then that lends credence, and I, I know it's still going to take some bravery on the yeah. part of the first scientists who decide to, to look at UFOlogy as a real field of study and right. not something that's like, um, laughed at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Scorned. It's not a joke. It's not scorned. It, yeah, it's going to take some bravery on the part of scientists, but that's. You know, that's the name of the game. That's what you have to do when you're going into a new field of study. Yeah. um, Is face a lot of criticism. But 
it, somebody's got to do it because this is a real thing. Yeah. I mean, let me tell you, this happens. It's not just science. The getting to the truth of anything is consistently held down by monetary incentives. Okay. Yeah. And by and, public opinion. Yep. Yeah. And, and, and I want, I want to, for example, okay. Now I have gotten compliments from brilliant people that frankly work at major institutions, uh, uh, like institutions of, of learning and science who, who have said like one of sovereign tech strengths. And he was also re- referencing another, a YouTube channel, which I heartily recommend by a guy named Isaac Arthur. That's the YouTube channel. This guy does tremendous work is that we're small enough to where we don't have to worry about getting shut down or about like, say, if we do have advertisers, those advertisers are also on the scale and understand exactly what we're about and won't hush us, you know, won't shut us up. You get a podcast or a YouTube channel to a certain scale. And then you say something controversial, like angry video game nerd. If James were an anarchist, he's never going to tell you that he's never going to say it because you know what? The instant he does that, you know, he's lucky if he's going to stay on, on YouTube for one. And for two, he's, he's lucky if he's going to keep any of those precious advertisers because they're going to run to the hills. The instant <laughs> yeah. you, you lay out any kind of truth. All right. And so, and I know this, I've had uh, this show. I mean, when you've been around almost 10 years, you, you, you get a lot of experience. I've had points where this show was uh, perhaps not as controversial as a test phase. What kind of advertisers we can get. Oh, when, when the golden Stallion's a little less controversial, it's hard to imagine, but when I'm a little less controversial, I get all kinds of advertisers. Oh, oh, we'd love to be on your show. And oh shit though. Once he starts saying, oh, no, no. All right. Could you lay off the anarchy a little bit? Could you not say that X, you know, that, that such and such, could you not talk about ancient civilizations? Could you not talk about this? As soon as you start doing that, oh, no, no, oh man, uh, uh, they're just not interested. Oh, we'll just drop them like a hot potato. Right. I mean, you've got to be able to have the freedom to say what you want to oh, say. Well, absolutely. But that's the thing is that this happens in science. It happens literally across the board. And as long, and this is, boy, you want to talk about controversy. You want to talk about where I'm going to lose listeners? As long as there are monetary incentives involved at a, at a large scale, right? It, this We're never going to get to any truth of anything. We're yeah. just not. We're just not. And this has been a problem forever. I mean, scientists have struggled so much to get money and funding for mm-hmm. research into things that are genuinely of interest. Yeah. And I mean, now is a great time to be working in immunology or something like right. that because there's tons of funding going into like finding a vaccine for COVID-19. Right. But all the other scientists who are working on maybe like, you know, space telescopes or like deep sea exploration, they're Shit out of luck. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and I have the answer and you can tell me what you think of this own. I mean, I, I think, the, or I have the solution I'd, I should say is that, I mean, a lot of, and I've had personal friends who they're running insane laboratories out of their apartments. They're little shitty ass apartments. Okay. And, and, Good I, for and them. I, I don't mean that as an insult to them and they are working on the hardest problems in the world. I mean, we're talking like immortality, all kinds of things. These people are are serious, all right? They are they're absolutely serious. These aren't you know what anyone would ever call a a wacko of any type, you know, or, or nut job or anything like that. Um, but where they run into roadblocks, so you can get open source laboratory tools and all kinds of other shit, you know, in in your room and whatever. Now, I mean, they're gonna is that legal? Well, that's something. But then if nobody knows, nobody knows. 
The real issue that they run into is they can't get access to previous research. All of that's behind paywalls, uh, uh, you know, whatever other, I mean, because, you know, scientific papers aren't just available for everybody to read. They oh, I damn know. well should be. Yeah, right. You do. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as a, as a student, currently, I have the privilege of having access to amazing databases. Right. Uh, but I, some of these papers are hundreds of dollars each just to get access for 24 hours. Exactly. And that, that now, so, so we can, we could start to get past the monetary incentives. Okay. And do science in our homes. Right. But then, you know, we, for a lot of us, we'd have to start from square one. You know, we'd have to start from zero because we can't get access to a lot of the previous research or even research that is highly relevant to, to what we would want to do, you know, to what we're researching. And that's, but so if you eat, I mean, one of the ways to solve this, okay, fine. You don't want to talk about the, the money thing. One of the ways to solve this is open up the fucking information that shouldn't be closed in the first place. And of course, if you do that, hello, Aaron Schwartz, right? You know, I mean, you, you're going to get the system coming down on you because they know exactly, you know, the problem or the solutions that it brings for everyone and the problems it brings for the state or for the institutions attached thereof. So, I mean, I, what, what do you think about that? I mean, do you think that all that should be opened up? Yeah, of course. I think that all of that information should be free and publicly available. Sure. Especially scientific papers. Those are the basis for the knowledge of and understanding of our modern civilization, technology, medicine, right. you know, anything that has benefited us in any way over the past, you know, 100 years 200 years yeah is all in those scientific papers and like to keep that from people is just a crime yeah absolutely and money has nothing to do with it yeah I mean, and that and right right no you're totally right uh i mean that that's all about control and well anyway um read on yes so sean illing uh i think there are other explanations here but we'll get to that first Let's talk about these Navy videos. What do you think you're seeing when you watch these? Alexander went. The first thing I'd say is that it doesn't matter what I think because I'm not a scientist, right? I don't know what's on those videos. But to me, I listen to the pilots, to their voices, and I trust them much more than I would trust myself. And they're clearly seeing something extraordinary. Now, whether it's alien life, who knows? It's a plausible explanation. My point is that we should be agnostic about this and simply study it scientifically. Let's do the science and then we can talk about what we found. Until we've done that, it's all bullshit. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, Sean Illing, is it possible that there is no real taboo and that the lack of rigorous study has more to do with the limits of the field or the paucity of evidence than anything else? Alexander went, well, it's true that the evidence we have is very vague. Most of it is anecdotal. It's not scientific. A lot of it is eyewitness reports. On the other hand, the evidence has been going on for many decades. It's very consistent in many ways. It's all over the world. There's a huge number of cases, and there is physical evidence in the form of videos or radar accounts. And when that evidence comes from the U.S. Navy, it's safe to say that it's legit and not doctored. Uh, Sean Illing, but what would a science what would a science of UFOs even look like? How do we study empirically something for which there's so little empirical evidence? Alexander went. Like Elizabeth Warren says, I have a plan for that. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Sean Illing, great. Let's hear it. Alexander went, 
About five years ago, some colleagues of mine and I formed a nonprofit called UFO Data, and the objective we set for the nonprofit was to create a ground-based network of surveillance stations that would monitor the sky 24-7 with cameras and various other technologies looking for UFOs. Anything comes along, boom, the camera starts snapping pictures or radar or film until the UFO passes. The technology is very sophisticated now and very cheap. Uh, Sean Illing, I don't quite understand the need for that. There are thousands of satellites and radar systems operating all over the world at every moment, surveilling and recording and tracking. An obvious question is, why are there not more sightings? Why is there not more evidence? Why are there so few compelling pieces of evidence? Alexander Went, I think part of the problem is that a lot of the parameters of these technologies that we use to look for asteroids and meteors and all these other things are such that UFOs may not be within those parameters, and so they'll just be discarded as noise or unnoticeable junk. So that's one explanation for why we uh, see less than we might. Now, I'll break in on that quick. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, just like SETI, right, which is actually looking for alien life. It's only covering the smallest of percentages of areas to look for, you know, what they would consider evidence of extraterrestrial life. Yeah, and another, and to his point, like SETI, that's only listening for reception of right. some sort of electromagnetic waves. Right. It's not taking pictures. No, we don't have a bunch of tricorders out there that are picking up every little signal, you know, like that's not, that's not how this works. And Go it's ahead. also listening like many, many light years away, not within the Earth's atmosphere. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what he means when he's talking about parameters. Yeah. 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 So I think he's got a point there that, mm -hmm. you know, okay, well, we might not see it because we're not that. looking specifically in that area. Exactly. You know, it's amazing. Like humans are so terrible with that when you're looking for something and it's in a place that's noticeable, but yeah. you don't expect it to be there. You know, like, yeah, I'm you looking won't for see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm just looking for my glasses everywhere. It's in right. some place that I don't normally put it, but it's still in plain sight but it's going to take me 10 minutes to find them. <laughs> no, it's, it's a great analogy. Uh, you know, like where are your keys? They might be in your hand, but if you're not paying attention to the senses of holding your keys. Exactly. You, you don't know, you know, <laughs> even though they're right there, mm -hmm. <laughs> like it's obvious. And yeah. even when you're searching, you know, you're just, if you don't pay attention to those senses or in this case, those parameters, you miss it. So I think it's so important for humans to acknowledge like, yes, we have major blind spots. Right. And we also are very limited in what we can pay attention to at any one point in time. And also we don't see things unless we're specifically looking for it. Absolutely. So let's go to the next. Uh, secondly, no one is bothered to actually look for UFOs. We're looking for ETs around distant stars. We're looking for comets. We're looking at all other kind, all kinds of other things in the atmosphere. No one, as far as I know, is seriously looking for UFOs. But to me, it doesn't really matter why we don't see more. What matters is these three videos that the Navy released. I, I agree. Uh, I defy anyone to watch those and come away thinking there's nothing there worth investigating. Those pilots who spent thousands of hours in the sky who are flying the most sophisticated machines in the entire world are seeing something that they have never seen before and are completely blown away by it. Again, these are videos released by the Navy, and so I'm inclined to believe what I'm seeing. What's striking is that the objects don't behave like natural phenomena. One of the objects rotate as it's, uh, rotates as it's flying against the wind, which is not normal, and the pilots are clearly under the impression that these objects are under intelligent control. Sean Illing, uh, are you persuaded at all by some of the non-ET explanations? For instance, that some of the UFOs are actually weather balloons or drones or shadow of aircraft above and what, or, or and that what appear to be advanced maneuvers are really just a product of infrared glare or camera angles or eyewitness errors. Alexander Went, I think the majority of UFO reports probably have conventional explanations like that, and they're just misidentifications by observers on the ground. 
that's probably the majority of cases. So it's really the hardcore minority cases that don't have those kinds of obvious explanations. And that's where we have better physical evidence or authoritative sources like the military. And it's really easy to throw out skeptical possibilities, but I look at those videos and they don't look fake to me at all. Sean Illing says, no, they don't. Um, Stallion breaking in. I watched these. I talked about them on the show previously and I second that there's something there. Like I, I, I don't think that those look fake at all. And I want to reiterate what Went is saying here in that, you know, that these pilots are trained to not see, to, to cut through the bullshit in the air. If you, if you, if, if you are prone to seeing shit while you're flying, you are dead. Like, like, I mean, that's it. That, that is, you, you know, I mean, there's a reason most people can't be jet fighter pilots. It's because it takes a special amount of training and a special someone that can even handle that training. And that's why I also give these a lot of credence, even though, you know, fuck the military and anti-war and the whole thing. Okay. But that that's irregardless, or that's, that's not a word that's regardless of, you know, the evidence that we're presented with here. Do you have any thoughts on that, Ellen, or do you want me to move on? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think it's making a huge assumption saying that these videos are, um, legitimate because they come from a military organization, but it's one that I think we can reasonably make. Yeah. You yeah. know, because uh, it would, it would take, I guess just according to Occam's razors, the simplest explanation that these are real and that we can trust them from the military. Mm-hmm. Like it would, you'd have to like construct this whole conspiracy theory about how they're being fake so that they can control this. Exactly. And this. Uh, so, you know, I think they're real. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And if you watch the videos and hear what the pilots are saying, they are in awe. And you know, what they're seeing is very real to them. Right. So uh, Sean Illing continues. Tell me the truth. You think it's aliens, right? <laughs> Alexander went, I think so. If I were placing a bet, I guess I would say 51 to 49 in favor of ETs, but it wouldn't surprise me at all. If the opposite were true. Again, we haven't done the science. Sean Illing, that's a big number, Alex. Alexander Went, it is. Sean Illing, to say that something is hard to explain uh, is not to say that it's inexplicable, though. It's entirely possible, likely even, that there's a simple account of these encounters and we just don't have it yet. What's the Occam's Razor explanation for these UFO sightings? Alexander Went, to me, the Occam's Razor explanation is ETs, which is exactly your point, Ellen. Uh, Right on. That's kind of surprising to me because I would think the Occam's Razor explanation would be it's an alternative government project. You know, there's some other government in the world that's what I run with. that is yes. building yeah. aircraft that can do these weird things. Right. But then again, there are other things like the aircraft flying at 90 degree angles going really fast and not slowing down, seemingly defying the laws of our known physics. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that you can explain that right. using the, the alternative government hypothesis. Yeah, that, that's where I think people want to bring in the ETs is because they're, again, they're breaking at certain points. These things break the laws of physics, say, maybe not not as much, the the, the ones from the three Navy videos, but still. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and and I talked about it when we when I last covered the story that, yeah, that's where I sit, is that they're just advanced government planes. I think actually every UFO is basically that. I mean, I could get into some further flights of fancy, but it wouldn't go to ETs, but we'll talk about that. Um, so let's see, let's keep reading here. Uh, Alexander went, it explains all the cases just like that. 
And you don't need a whole bunch of different theories or assumptions for all these different phenomena, right? Because the phenomena are different, but I guess I don't see a, com a competing explanation of any kind that explains some of the stuff that we have, that we either have on film or the pilots have seen. And again, why didn't the military come up with these alternative explanations? They must have thought about them and concluded it doesn't fit the data. Now, that's a great point for him to bring up yes. as well. Like, and, and because granted, there have been plenty of times throughout the years where the military has done that. Oh, it's a weather balloon. Oh, is this, you know, you think Roswell, you think these other things. Sure. And the military is very quick to come up with an alternative explanation. But I guess this time they're not so quick. And that's part of what's making, that's part of what's adding to the validity of, what's, of these videos. Yeah, it, it really does lend credence to that, especially considering like the Navy has to come up with new protocols now to look mm -hmm. out for these sorts of things because it genuinely does pose a threat to the pilots. Right. Yeah. I mean, and this is a point I brought up again before is that these pilots are trained. If you, you know, you don't just talk about bullshit. If you're going to report something in, boy, it better be something, it better be legit. You know, like it better be very real. You know, they don't, nobody has time and nobody is interested on official records of, you know, a, a fly smacking you in the face. I mean, not that it'd be a fly, but you get my point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that, it just adds to it. Let's keep reading. Uh, Sean Illing. I'm not sure that's right. They, they may have a strong hunch, but simply can't prove it. So it remains officially unidentified. We can definitely say that the chances that aliens are involved is non-zero, but beyond that, I have no idea. Um, Alexander Went, that's pretty close to my position. Sean Illing, but a weather balloon or malfunctioning radar systems or just eyewitness mistakes seems like much simpler explanations. Alexander Went, but you'd have to explain why multiple instruments were all malfunctioning in the same way at the same time. You've got multiple jets up there. You've got radar on the ships, uh, ships down below tracking at the same time. You've got communications going on with the people on the ships and the planes, the guys in the planes. So whatever explanations people do offer, they've got to fit the data. It doesn't look like that was a weather balloon that those guys were seeing. I assume professional fighter pilots are pretty good at spotting and recognizing weather balloons. And surely that's a common occurrence. It's easy to be a skeptic here. I get that. All I'm saying is, is that there's enough here to justify the science. The puzzle is that we're not doing the science. To me, that's the essential phenomenon that's of interest. Sean Illing, why would scientists care about UFOs? Why should philosophers care? Why should anyone care? Alexander Went, because if ETs were discovered, it would be the most important event in human history. Sean Illing, why? Alexander Went, it is because it, if it became known, it could be a very dangerous event in the sense that we might see a collapse of state authority. Woo. Yeah. Uh, we, <laughs> we might see chaos. The possibility of contact with a civilization that has vastly more knowledge than we do is exciting and terrifying and unpredictable. Sean Illing, I mean, isn't that a case for putting our heads down and minding our own fucking business? Stephen Hawking famously warned humanity about the perils of first contact with an alien species. Quote, if aliens visit us, the outcome would be such as when Columbus landed in America, which didn't turn out well for the Native Americans. No, quote. it did not. Was he wrong? <laughs> let, let me read Alexander Went. Then I want to. I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, my feeling is that if they're here, they're almost certainly peaceful. Because if they were not peaceful, they would have wiped us out a long time ago. They can probably do it very quickly. So my assumption is they don't mean any harm. But it's still the case that society could implode or destabilize as a result of colliding with ETs. So that is a really good point because mm -hmm. humans have done plenty of things. I think like if this alien or extraterrestrial species thought that humans were impeding on their planet in some mm -hmm. way, they could have easily killed us at any point in history. Right. But they chose not to. Even now, they're not wiping us out. Yeah. It's a fair point, but... I don't so know, they must be playing some other game. 
You know, either they don't want to interfere because they know that it'll destabilize our culture and they want to be introduced to us in a friendly way, Mm -hmm. or there's something else, some larger plan. But it certainly is not enslave humanity because they could have done that already. (sighs) Yeah. I want to keep reading. I hear you. Something about that, that, that still, well, anyway, let, let me read Sean Illing here. And I, I, I think you're raising a great point. I think Alexander Went is raising a great point that they could have already, but let me read what he what Sean Illing says. That's a big assumption. If they are here, they might be peaceful. Sure. But they might also be on an ongoing or on a scouting operation. They might be looking for holes in our defenses, weaknesses in our societies and in our physical bodies. The point, obviously, is that we have no freaking idea. So maybe that's the case for following Hawking's lead here, right? Maybe it's best to not go poking about for superior life. Uh, Alexander Wendt says, I thought about this and I worry less about poking around and getting conquered and more about the potential realization that these things are here and then an, or, and then an internal implosion of our society. So I worry more about my fellow human beings more than I worry about the aliens. So I guess in that sense, I disagree with Hawking's premise that they're out to get us. But sure, it's possible they're on a surveillance mission. But people have been reporting UFOs for at least 80 years, and that's a really, really long surveillance mission. And also, why would they want to conquer us? That's like conquering ants. Uh, Sean Illing, if some of these UFOs are the products of alien life, why haven't they made their presence more explicit? If they wanted to remain undetected, they could, and yet they continually expose themselves in these semi-clandestine ways. Why? Alexander Wendt, that's a very good question because you're right. I think if they wanted to be completely secretive, they could. If they wanted to come out in the open, they could do that too. My guess is that they have had a lot of experience with this in the past with civilizations at our stage, and they probably know that if they land on the White House lawn, there will be chaos and social breakdown. People will start shooting at them. So I think that they're what they're doing is trying to get us used to the idea that, that, that they're here with the hopes that we'll figure it out ourselves, that we'll go beyond the taboo and do the science, and then maybe we can absorb the knowledge that we're not alone and our society won't implode when we finally do have contact. That's my theory. Who knows, right? Sean Billing, it's an interesting theory and as likely as any other, but Hawking's theory is every bit as plausible. Uh, okay, I'm going to go one more with Alexander Went. That's right, but our... But people have speculated that any civilization that's able to travel between the stars would have to become nonviolent because they would never survive long enough if they're violent among themselves to actually reach a point where their technology wasn't that sophisticated. And human beings don't seem to be as violent as we used to be. So there's that. Um, Okay, wait, no, I got to give Sean Illing. And I'd say our institutions have evolved or I'd say our institution have institutions have evolved and the incentives guiding our behavior have evolved, but I don't think we have. I think human beings are as nonviolent as their circumstances allow them to be. Alexander went, that's fair. So there's a here's the thing. A lot of that is assumption. Like Sean Illing is right on that, that, that a lot of that are, are assumptions. Um, there was a movie that was supposed to get made about Gene Roddenberry that was basically about him making Star Trek. But in the movie, now I don't think this movie ever got made, um, but in the movie, the idea was is that he's making Star Trek based on what aliens told him to, to, to do because he has to get people ready. It's predictive programming. He has to get humanity ready for them coming and that that was the entire purpose of Star Trek. <laughs> oh, that'd be a wonderful movie. Right. Yeah, it'd be I, really I, meta. Uh, yeah, I think so, too. I think it'd be very interesting. And actually, uh, something I talked about, was it on the last episode of Sovereign Tech? No, it was the the second to last episode of Sovereign Tech, where I talk about Gene Roddenberry's last conversation, that book, in that Gene Roddenberry basically admits he doesn't think he's human. 
he says he's in a human body, but he doesn't think he's human. Yeah, uh, that's or, pretty strange. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's that's striking. And folks, if you don't believe me, go fucking read it for yourself because uh, some asshole happened to post the book, which isn't available as an ebook anywhere. It doesn't matter where you go, even on torrent sites, it's not there. It's so weird. But somebody in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group put that book there. They got it professionally scanned. They paid for it to get done, the whole thing, and they they just dropped it off. And I, I can't believe that. What a jerk. So anyway, I get these theories. I, I, I really do. Um, I mean, also, you know, the other part is that, say it's extraterrestrials. And they came to Earth, and they find this uh, species that say is inferior, whatever that means, you know, that, that can change a person's mind. I mean, one only you have to look at actually here, here's an analogy that Alexander went, didn't decide to go down. Um, Captain cook. Okay. Not Robin cook, Captain cook, Captain cook, you know, when he got to his islands, Oh, he very quickly began to think, Oh, these are my islands. I am the king of the fucking sea. I am the king of the ocean. And he started, uh, you know, even even though at first he's telling his, uh, you know, his fellow uh, 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 crew people, crewmen of uh, of the resolution, you know, you're going to treat these people with respect. You're going to, you know, when he gets to Tahiti or, you know, wherever else, I mean, to all these islands, he's like, you're going to treat them with respect. You're going to blah, blah, blah. Eventually he starts buying into his own bullshit. And uh, and I can only imagine, you know. I mean, I'm sure he took advantage of the situation and, and, and it seems pretty clear even in his logs. Like, yeah, he felt like he was, I mean, he, he had himself a white savior complex and this is, this would be the ET savior complex, you know? And, and that leads to, I think all kinds of problems. So even if they came here and they were originally nonviolent, you know, once they realize that, oh, we're superior, we're this and that, I don't know. And, you know, and then you get into like, okay, let's say they've been here for a very long time. Then you can't help but get into like Genesis six, four, you know, what if, uh, out of, out of the Bible. Now I, I, you know, I, I don't think, well, I'm going and what if the they're not subject to the same failings that humans are? Well, that's fair. That, that, that's, that's, that's a good counterpoint. To they're an out. entirely different species. Yeah. What I was going to talk about is the verse of, you know, <laughs> where the, the, the sons of God went into the daughters of men, you know, was, is that talking about like these, uh, these advanced aliens suddenly saying, well, these human women, not bad, not <laughs> bad. And, and, and they, and, you know, they, they changed their mind, you know, but you're right. I mean, that's fair to say is that why would they act like captain cook, you know, cause they're not human. So what, what, what would be the example of that? But I feel like a, yeah, I don't know. I feel like a lot of what Alexander Went is suggesting is also, I mean, because then you could use that against that same logic, Ellen. It's a great counterpoint, but that could be used against the nonviolent thing. We don't know how the species operates, you know, like maybe they can get to faster than light travel or something and be the fucking Klingons. Okay, well, that's yeah. true. But if we yeah. can't make any assumptions, then don't. <laughs> no, I, I agree. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Absolutely. We can't draw any conclusions based off of video footage. Right. So let's not assume anything. Right. Fair. Okay. Well, let's read on. See what Sean Ealing is assuming here. All right. There's not much more to go. But um, okay. So if there's a non-zero chance that aliens are real and they know we're here, it's crazy that governments aren't more concerned about the dangers. We've all seen the same movies. How do you explain the apparent difference here? 
Alexander went for governments. There's no real upside to talking about this. They can't control this. If there are ETs, they don't have the power to do anything about it. If they're helpless in the face of ET uh, or they're helpless in the face of ETs. And there's a big downside risk of social chaos, loss of authority, loss of control and all that. So I think governments have lots of reasons to let a sleeping dog lie, which is why the Navy's thing is so surprising in a way. Sean Illing, maybe several governments already know of ETs and aren't revealing that knowledge for all the reasons you suggest. Uh, Alexander went, I'm a strong disbeliever in any kind of dis, uh, conspiracy argument. I don't think there has ever been a conspiracy to cover up the truth that we know that aliens are here. At most, we've covered up the fact that we have no idea what's going on. Um, I'll break in for a second on that. I already brought up the, Bur the Brookings report, which that's not conspiracy. That's totally legitimate. And the government position or their best position was that, no, we don't tell people. And and that's what Sean Illing was suggesting. It's like, well, yeah, you know, like that's basically what the government said that they do. Yeah. And I mean, you can bring into this like the doctored NASA photos of the moon or Phobos oh, sure, or something. Sure. Um, but that's I, I don't know that there's enough evidence to say that those are real occurrences. But if they are covering up something, it's because they can't explain it. I'm sure. Yeah. You know? Maybe it's just they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. They themselves. And, and, and your your point about let's not make any assumptions. Like, I mean, yeah, like that, that, that's how we should look at this. Go, oh, we don't know. We, you know, we don't know what to do with this. And it's like, you're, you're basically saying it might not be nefarious. It might just be simply, look, we don't know what to do. And so why like let it out, you know? I mean, and I can, to some degree, I can respect that. I don't respect governments at all or authoritarianism at all, but I, there are things that go through my head that I don't have enough evidence to back my position on. And so I keep my mouth shut to yeah. most people, yeah. you know? And so like, I can kind of understand that perspective, right? Okay. We don't have enough evidence. So why tell people about it? I mean, cause I have some wild, wild shit that runs through my head. Right. And of course you, Ellen, more than anybody, you know, knows. Uh, <laughs> oh, I get to hear about you it. You get to hear it's, you know, and, and, but I don't say it on the show because I don't have enough to back it up. But the thing is, I, I think it's fine to develop theories, Yep. Um, you know, plausible theories, but, that doesn't mean that you have to assume that they're true. It's possible that you could have multiple running theories about the same thing at the same time. That's true. Yeah. Concurrent um, theories. Yeah. And people love making theories. That's what we're built to do. We are, you know, our brains are like uh, predictive computers. Right. We, we like to, to know what we're getting into. We like pattern going, recognition. Yeah, exactly. That's for sure. Um, but there's no reason to that that we need to say that any of our theories are, you know, true or what we expect. It's just mm -hmm. it it could make it easier for us to integrate knowledge if one of our theories did turn out to be true. And also, there's no reason for there to just be one reason. Like, I, yeah. I, I mean, that that's a failing that happens with a lot of this. So why are they here? And it's like, well, I could give you one one reason, you mm -hmm. know, even if you knew exactly why they're if they're here and why they're here there'd still be a multitude of reasons. Like, why would it just be one, you know? Yes, exactly. Like, we didn't go to the moon for one reason. There are a bunch of reasons. We just went to the, to the moon to plant the flag. Yeah, we just went there to play <laughs> golf. Oh, okay, right. We went yeah. there to test Newton's theories. Yeah. <laughs> like, no, there is a bunch of... In fact, there are reasons that we, we went there with, with trying to find new reasons to go there, right? That's like the old Cisco quote. It's like, we don't just go looking for answers to questions. We go looking for new questions. Yes. And a lot of the things we do is like, well, why'd you do it? It's like, well, I had this reason, this reason, but I think along the way I might discover some others. 
And that's part of the point. And, you know, for as much as I respect Stephen Hawking. Yeah. I think that quote that he made about keeping your head down and minding your own business is such a shame. Yeah. Really, like, if there is another species out there that's more intelligent, we can't ignore it. Right. Like, we have to acknowledge it and learn as much as we can about it, regardless of whether it's violent or it has good intentions. Right, because you can't ignore the consequences of its existence. Exactly. You're going to have to confront it at some point. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Um, All right, so let's let's go with Sean Illing uh, some more. What's the argument or the piece of evidence that gives you the most pause? What makes you think there's nothing here? Uh, Alexander Wendt says, that's a good question that I don't have a good answer shows my bias in a way. I guess I'd like to see more videos of the sort the Navy just released. It's likely they have other videos they haven't released. So I guess I would like to see more physical evidence. I suppose that's my answer. The thing that gives me the most pause is that we have so little evidence. Sean Illing, uh, you said a minute ago that we might be in in a pre-contact situation in which ETs are gradually acclimating us to their presence. If that's true, what should we uh, be doing to prepare for whatever comes next? Alexander Wendt, actually, that's the next article I would like to write. I don't know what the answer is right now. I only write articles where I don't know the answer ahead of time. But I guess I will say this. Montezuma could have prepared a lot better for Cortez than he did had he only known Cortez was coming. Yeah. Fucking yeah. right. Yeah, and I and I totally agree with that. And, I mean, I, you know, I think that last question that Sean Illing puts out, is a good one for two reasons, or there's more than one question. What do you do to prepare? What brings you pause? What brings you pause is trying to falsify your claims or your beliefs. And that is absolutely essential. And that does not get enough. That does not, that doesn't get done enough in any ology of any stripe. It just doesn't. Nobody tries to really falsify their beliefs well enough. I mean, I know, you know, testing your hypothesis is supposed to be part of the scientific process, but it doesn't always happen. Um, And, the other part of what to do to prepare. I would definitely like to talk about that, but this is a brilliant conversation that got laid out here. Definitely. And a lot of great ideas that get brought up. I I will say personally, um, I'm disappointed that the crypto terrestrial possibility or even the ultra ultra terrestrial hypothesis or or the, you know, the interdimensional hypothesis that none of those entered the the fray. They stuck almost explicitly with ETs. Well, the funny thing is it does show their, background assumption that the ets came from far away right um it's possible that they just never considered that they could have been from this very planet but i mean he did mention it earlier in the conversation that like if they did evolve on this planet they might see the planet as theirs not ours yeah 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 or if they've been here for a long time mm-hmm. before again mm-hmm. humans were on stage that it's their planet and not ours and and i thought that was that was maybe the biggest thing to pull out of this was that like, Oh shit, you know? And, and you know, what if this isn't ours? And of course you raised the great counterpoint of, we should never think of it as ours anyway, but you know, or as property anyway. Yeah. It, it's certainly not property. I mean, you can't own life. You can't control nature. It's right. by definition out of control. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, even when you lay down sidewalk, there's still blades of grass and dandelions that spring up in the cracks. Like that's going to happen anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I think there's other, there's other hypotheses here that, that weren't discussed. Um, the idea of it being like for other governments, I mean, you mm-hmm. can take that a step further. And I mean, there's people who talk about this, who I think are, who are off their rocker, but they espouse this idea perhaps uh, more readily than anyone else. And that's of breakaway civilizations. 
That being that, oh, actually, we've had, or, you know, governments, modern governments have had wildly advanced technologies for a very long, for, for at least a few decades. And in fact, they've already, like, this This gets into, um, I keep forgetting his name. That's terrible. But the guy from Britain who cracked into DOD servers in the early aughts, and he found listings for all these ships, for all these Navy ships, speaking of the Navy. And... Uh, it's, it's not McDermott. It's, it's something like that anyway. And uh, he's like, wait, but, but these ships aren't on earth. What the fuck are, what's this list of ships And his conclusion? And with the, the evidence seems to suggest these are ships in outer space, like the USS, whatever sounds like something, you know, something from Starfleet. Right. Um, McKinnon maybe is his name. Anyway, doesn't matter. Uh, so, you know, the idea that, Oh, these things are, you know, still human made, but it's from like this breakaway civilization that's, you know, doing their business on Mars and on the moon and, and wherever else. Uh, I mean, that's an interesting route to go, but again, unfortunately we don't get to explore any of this because it always gets laughed off. Um, and, and I agree with the overall sentiment of the article. It's time to stop laughing it off. We don't have to instantly run to thinking ETs. Not little green men. No, right. But let's start, let's start considering the the insane or what would previously be seen as the insane let's start you know uh, considering the fantastical yeah and you know this is really exciting because in any field of science this is how the new field is born right you know like uh people used to think that it was insane to be inoculated with like pus from someone's infected wound, but that's how vaccines began. Yes. You know, and now everybody gets vaccinated. Well, not everybody. I shouldn't say that, but uh, a large percentage of the population gets vaccinated almost every year, if not every Mm -hmm. like seven years or something. Mm -hmm. Um, So it, it just, it always starts out like that with lots of ridicule and people thinking this is madness. This is, black magic you know something like we we just should not go here uh but no it's it's really getting lots of credence and i think over time uh there will be like momentum picked up by you know people making discoveries or putting forth theories or something like that there will be literature published and more and more people will feel comfortable actually addressing what used to be a taboo subject right well even just in conventional history science itself came out of alchemy Okay. And if, you know, we can say, or conventionally people will say that what the alchemists, you know, were coming up with and what they were trying to develop in the, okay, a lot of that was horseshit, you know, but in exploring that horseshit, you ended up finding some, you know, some, some, some sometimes bull- literal horseshit. Yeah. Yeah. You, right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. But, but you ended up finding, you know, uh, uh, worthy nuggets in that cow pie. And, you know, and, and, and science was born, but, but it took, but this is, this is the part that people miss. It took exploring the craziness. It took, okay, wait, did John D really talk to angels or no? You know, it it took as it took trying to prove these insane ideas. Okay. And then disproving them. That's when, because like, or for example, during the, uh, um, uh, uh, during the enlightenment. Okay. And even parts of the Renaissance. They were trying, what it's the, the first scientists, what they're trying to do was prove God, right? God, they're trying to prove the sky daddy. I shouldn't say God. They were trying to prove the sky daddy. And in so doing, they're like, wait a minute, there is no sky daddy. 
But if you don't try, if you don't, if you don't even try to disprove it in the first place, <laughs> if you don't take it seriously for a minute and then try and disprove it, you never get to where we are now. You never get to developing science itself. And so I think Alexander Wendt is, is totally on for saying, no, 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 we got to take it seriously. We got to be allowed to ask these questions. We got to be allowed to explore it. Now, the problem is, much like Bitcoin has done with the U.S. dollar, okay, yeah, you start exploring, but you start taking seriously, whether you prove that they didn't, that they never existed or what, you start taking seriously the notion that, oh, there might be a, a superior or advanced or technologically advanced uh, species out there that are something beyond human. And yeah, the cards are going to fall away. Suddenly you're going to see, you know, the, the curtain gets pulled away. There is the wizard and it is an ugly old man. And holy shit, why were we ever listening to him in the first place? Because where does his authority come from? And you have no idea. And then the state, religion, all kinds of things, like boom, fall away. And I think that would be a beautiful thing. You know, I, I think it's really exciting, too, in the fact that once people begin to realize that there might be another intelligence out there besides our own, maybe it'll cause them to behave differently. Sure. You know, maybe they'll start being more respectful to the planet, to each other, and <sighs> and they'll start considering long-term implications of our decisions today. Yeah, I would hope that would happen. Yeah, that's the hope for sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I hate the word hope, but I would hope that that, happened, <laughs> that would happen. My only concern is for humans, I don't know that it would. For example. Well, it's certainly a test, an evolutionary test, I should say. And like, are we going to evolve to the next level absolutely. or are we going to die off? Yeah. I mean, because you know what's really sad? We can look back, again, even just with conventional history, we can look back and see the absolute barbarism that we engaged in as a species overall. Okay, and and it it infected the entire fucking species. You know, we can look back a couple thousand years, however long ago, and yet for and we can we can even say to ourselves, we can let the words escape from our lips. Those barbarians, oh. killing so many people, raping women, doing all these other things, whatever. Okay, going down the list of it. But then we get, but then you know, in action, how little we've changed. How, how, and it, it's like, so, I mean, we can even look at past examples and we're still not inspired to say, I am not going to be like that. I am not going to be like those barbarians. I am going to be something better. And even that's not enough. It's not enough to, to change. I mean, for fuck's sake, <laughs> you can't look at the Nazis in world war two and walk away from that saying, I, we will, you know, and, and walk away as the Jews did saying never again. Right. Or like the everyday person can't say themselves, I'll, ne I'll never fall for that. I'll never, we'll never be like that again. That'll never happen. No, but then son of a bitch in Richmond, you know, or wherever in the, in the world, we've got Nazis running around again. How the hell is that possible? You know? And so that, that's the problem is that it, it seems very rare that, that humans really learn, even when they are confronted with absolute evidence of where they are wrong. And, you know, they, 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 they just move on. And, 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 and I don't want to be that depressing. Well, maybe there's a certain strain of humans that are just not meant for intergalactic existence. Ooh, ouch. I mean, they can stay on the Earth's crust and be barbarians all they want. Well, see, that gets some, okay. But if you cannot learn from stories, from history, mm -hmm. how... Behaviors of certain kinds lead to really bad outcomes uh, and how certain things are actually more beneficial instead of having to go through that personally for years before learning that lesson. Then 
I don't know, you're just going to spend your entire life learning things all over again that you could have learned from reading? See, but you're, you're hitting at what I was saying earlier, is that this is the problem. Is that fine? If there are people who want to dig their heads in the sand, okay, even like Stephen Hawking, you know, it, that they want, they want to burrow and just go through their lives and just keep acting how they're acting, whatever. Okay. Like that, that's the nature of freedom, baby. You live how you want to live. Right. But then there's nowhere for us to go. Like there's nowhere for the people who are like, okay, no, we or we'd like to go explore the stars. That'd be fine. There's nowhere for us to go. Like we can't. And, 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 and yeah, I, I mean, we can live in the cracks. Like I've said many times on this show, you know, it seems to be the only option. Right. Right. That's why I keep talking about it. Uh, For now. Yeah. But that, but that's, you know, at the same time, that's fairly depressing, you know? Um, But I think that, again, I think this article is raising a great point that even when you are confronted with these videos that have as much credence and validity as anything of this type could, could have, they are being basically ignored by, you know, the institutions that have the, the tools and power to perhaps do something about it for, for lack of a better phrase. Um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you, I mean, do you think that, or what do you, what do you think is in these videos? I mean, do you have any theories? Like do you, do you, I know you said your Occam's razor was that it's other government craft, right? That's a, I think that's likely. I also think it's likely that there's another species on Earth that co-evolved here. I also think it's likely that there's just an extraterrestrial race that has set up a sort of base here. Um, it could be any one of those things. I don't know that I believe so much in like the alternative plane of existence theory. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. that one is just hard to wrap my head around. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's not likely. Um Regardless, I don't really know what the point of theorizing about their origins is. I mean, if we wanted to know that, we should ask them, right. you know? Right. Um, it's kind of pointless for us to guess as to where they come from. But they're here and they're unknown to us. And I just, I think that it definitely is worthwhile to try and figure out what's going on. Sure. Um uh, and if it's another government, then we'll probably never know. But yeah. if it really genuinely is another intelligence besides human, then I imagine someday when they judge that we are ready, that they will introduce themselves. Yeah. Yeah. You know, thinking about this and you and, and what you just said, um, like I, I am a major proponent on the show of discussing that, you know, homo sapiens sapiens is a really terrible umbrella Um, and that we don't explore enough that there are probably, you know, tens, maybe even hundreds, who knows of subspecies of what would be considered homo sapiens sapiens or homo sapiens, you know, wherever you want to go with that. Uh, And that there are those that are just different, kind of like we were talking about, you know, and maybe there's enough of them within a certain category that, well, shit, you know, like this, this is, again, this is a subspecies or this is another species or whatever. Yeah. And I was thinking about this while you're talking about it. Like we don't have a place to go, but imagine if there was a place for people like that to go that were different, that felt that they just needed to be away from regular humans, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Then they Xavier go Xavier School for Gifted Children. They form their own nation, whatever. They go to this isolated place. Uh-huh. That's like forming a new species, you know? That's like giving birth to a new yeah. a, a new culture. And I think the rest of the world as it is now would not tolerate that because they would look at us and say, oh, you think you're better than us. And then wage war or something. Because sure. they can't stand the idea of the different. Right. And so a group of people that have this ultimate power that they don't seem to have. Yeah. Or whatever it is. They, they, yeah. The power over their own minds and their instincts and Mm -hmm. abilities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this gets into, um, there's a book and, and there's, there's actually quite a few books that cover this kind of thing. Uh, it's a book review that you can find in the podcast feed somewhere. It's from a couple of years ago, at least where I uh, reviewed, um, Nick Redfern's Bloodline of the Gods. His theory is, is that, yeah, aliens or ETs did come here a long time ago. They are preparing humanity for something. And in fact, there are, like, he gets into type O negative blood, that that's actually an alien, that's a, that's a extraterrestrial species, or like that has, that's a mixture of Cro-Magnon and, um, I'll just say it, alien DNA for the simplicity of the matter. Uh, and there's other, there's other, there's a couple other books out there where they think that it's ultimately going to end in a race war. And I don't mean blacks versus whites. I mean, you know, ET infused humans and everyday humans. And well, it wouldn't be the ET humans that are starting the war. Well, I mean, yeah, I, at least I would hope, you know, if you're that advanced. Well, that's the, yeah. So because then there's other work like there's a guy, Brad Steger, who wrote quite a few books on the matter. I'm not going to say they're the most scientifically rigorous books I've ever read in my life. But he wrote a book <laughs> called The Star People and actually wrote an entire series, Gods of Aquarius, Star People, Starborn. There's a bunch of them. Um, and he gets into that, that I mean, kind of the same idea. Uh, and he actually argued that Philip K. Dick believe this that Phil K. Dick thought he wasn't human either and that he had this like star people DNA um, inside of him. Now that's his claim. And arguably Philip K. Dick, his argument is that Philip K. Dick put it into one of his novels after the fact. I don't don't know where to go with that. Okay. But um, you know, Brad Steger's argument is that actually the star people, you know, or these or the star seed as he would call them, are here to improve humanity, you know, not to go to war with them, but to actually improve them. And, but I think even he, maybe like in Starborn, I think even he would recognize that um, there's going to be an apocalypse because basically what the star seed are presenting to the earth, this new way of life, very peaceful one, very positive one, it sounds like, is a threat to domination structures you know, into the, to the old order as it were. And that you're going to have a time of, you know, you're basically going to have what he he uses biblical terms. You're going to have an age of apocalypse. And because the the old order is not going to let this fly without, without a fight and that that's going to happen and that you survive it. And I guess that gets into, now I'm not, I'm just telling you what's out there, folks. That's, That's all I'm doing here. Okay. Um, I mean, it was kind of weird that it said that you have a rare blood, like, how do you know you're a star seed? You have a rare blood type, your body temperature is lower than normal. And I'm listening to that. I'm like, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a few other things, sensitivity to light and some other stuff. I'm like, oh, oh, 
Oh. Uh, <laughs> so you did read to me a questionnaire that was supposed to help you determine I if did. you're a starseed or not. And I some did. of these questions were pretty strange. You know, it's like, do you have an affinity towards like hummingbirds or willow trees? Oh, they're very weird. Flowers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I mean, do, do, do you have something you want to go with that or, or were you just bringing it up? Well, I'm just saying like, you know, so, some of these uh, criteria for whether or not you're a starseed, I think are... They're kind of strange, and it all almost feels like uh, astrology in that yeah. like it could fit a lot of different people. Yeah, I mean, I'll say like his books again, not scientifically rigorous. I, I didn't feel, um, but you know, I don't know. PKD, you know, Philip K. Dick thought he was an alien. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, Gene Roddenberry did. Gene Roddenberry thought he was, you know, <laughs> <laughs> or or he thought he was something else. He thought he was not human whatever the hell that means. Um, but anyway, getting into how do you survive this potential truth or this potential fact? How do you, you know, if we find out that they are, you know, I mean, in his, I think Alex, uh, Alex Wentz point of, well, you know, if, uh, if Montezuma just prepared himself for Cortez, he would have been much better off. This dovetails nicely with what we were talking about at the top of the episode with COVID-19. Um, no, our, our civilization is terribly fragile, terribly fragile. Our technologies are horrible. I mean, they're not horrible because of like their ability. They're horrible because of their inability because, or their inability because of their fragileness. They're horrible because like you can take it out and it's not hard. You know, like, I mean, th- this is, how do you prepare if this happens? You need to be as and this has basically been sovereign text message for, you know, almost a decade. You need to be as little reliant upon civilization and the system as possible, you know, as, as makes sense, you know, I mean, be practical. Sure. But you've got to be as, as, as less reliant upon all of this, which is what's going to get disrupted. If you know, the civilization collapse or, or social collapse or whatever that would occur. I mean, if COVID-19 didn't tell you, wow, I need to be less reliant upon the system, you know, and I need to be prepared and I need this and, you know, uh, I don't know what will. Yeah. And it's unfortunate that the system, as you're Mm -hmm. talking about it, really relies on um, like the most advanced technology and the greatest resources being confined to a small percentage of the population. And I'm not arguing for like, you know, wealth distribution at all, but if, if these technologies were widely distributed if people had access to them if there were more resources contributed to these sorts of things mm-hmm. it wouldn't be so fragile right so i guess what i'm saying is like i i think the biggest problem like there's ip law and then there's also like government funding yep like it, money is such an issue when it comes to this well and that contributes to the fragility like right. most people think that that's actually like how you make this system more uh, fortified is like just throwing more money at it, but really just like money is the problem. Yeah. I mean, it gets down to, we have an issue where humanity has a water and diamonds problem. Okay. I mean, this is a well-known economic problem where basically you, uh, you effectively, you know, people will, they, they consider diamonds more valuable than water, which doesn't make any sense ultimately because it's like, wait a minute. You need water to survive. You do not need diamonds to survive. 
why do diamonds, why are diamonds so highly valued when water is not, you know, and, and this is still persisting, even though diamonds now get grown in labs and whatever else, this is still persisting where probably more money gets thrown at finery than it does at, you know, how about we make sure we have drinking water for fucking ever, you know, and, 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 and it's an odd thing that hum, that humans engage in. And, and it speaks to a, that there, there is a, there is a problem with priorities on a societal level that I think speaks to what you're, what you're talking about. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I, I guess, I mean, do you have anything to say as far as like, how do you, you know, how, how does Montezuma prepare for Cortez? You know, if the aliens are here, what do you do? Oh man, I don't, I don't know if I have the right answer for this. Um, I mean, like I would always approach situations like that, assuming that, you know, people are my comrades. <laughs> I don't yeah. want to go to war with them. Right. Um, but if they're bringing the war to me, like, of course I want to be prepared and ready. Um, and I think that it's a beneficial thing to like always prepare for the worst, but not expect it. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, maybe the, that was like the shortcoming on Montezuma's part was he just wasn't ready, but maybe they also had technology that Montezuma had never seen before. So I don't know. I mean, like, that's just such a tough question. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. prepare for the worst, but don't expect it. Right. Right. So, you know, be as little reliant upon the system as possible and, you know, the yeah, answer be to, personally responsible right, for yourself. Right. I mean, and that gets to personal responsibility gets to, you know, kind of the, I guess the, the ultimate umbrella answer to it, which is be the best fucking human being you can be. Yeah. You like <laughs> if, if, if I was living like in Montezuma society at the time that Cortez was showing up or like prior to that, spend all of your time, like working out training, like throw yeah. spears or something. I don't know. Just teach yourself everything that you can learn. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's the best way to to survive any, to survive a virus, to survive any invader. Like if it's an invader, yeah. Or to, I mean, and even if it's a peaceful invader, to survive any of that is always to be just at your absolute fucking best, whatever that is for you. And I imagine those people were really well equipped to like know how to survive in the wild, mm -hmm. which I think in that situation is also like if you have to run away, there's no shame in that. Right. Run as right. fast as you can and right. go live out in the woods. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I, I think, well, there, there you go. You know, <laughs> like go ahead, let, let, let Rome fall and just survive. I don't know. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you really value your life, you will find a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I don't know, like if, I don't know if Cortez showed up and made an ultimatum and said like, you're going to serve me or you're going to die. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in that case, either you die or you run away. Yeah. <laughs> because there's no way that you're going to win by fighting back. Yeah. If they have superior technology, like you can't fight fire with fire in that scenario. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah, be the best human you can be, you know, and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and yeah, be prepared, you know, or, and, and it's not even, again, I think even like preparedness, talk about something that has fucking baggage, right? Like, a, I mean, that's a very loaded term. Oh, yeah. Everybody thinks about preppers immediately. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So don't don't think of it that way. Just think of it in the in the concept of being as 
You know now, you know now, regardless of what you think about COVID-19, regardless of what you think the reality is around that, it has shown the the cracks, in fact, the the holes in the system. Okay, it's it shown it all. Uh, it's shown the fragileness. Yeah, Don't especially in the healthcare system. Exactly. So do whatever you can to just not be reliant upon that fragile system. There you go. Don't yeah. think of it as preparedness. Just think of how do how does when this when X happens, how does it not affect me? That's it. Preparedness takes on so many different forms. Like yeah. if you don't want to rely on the healthcare system, then be the healthiest person you can be. Exercise, Bingo. eat healthy, you know, take care of yourself. Make sure you don't touch your face when you're out in public. Yep. Simple things like that. I, I've said this since episode one of Sovereign Tech. One of the ways you can defeat the state is to outlive it. You know, like <laughs> just just live longer than the state. And I'll tell you, folks, I mean, let's just call it. Uh, the average age of any empire is 250 years. We're on 244 oh. in the United States. Okay. <laughs> this is. I, I'm just going to put that out there. All right. And anyway. Well, that's a pretty great stat. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there you have it. Um, well, let's. Oh, what do you got? I was just going to say, like, you brought up that there's also a taboo around being prepared. But I, that is one I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Like, I think the taboo around preparedness maybe comes from people preparing for what they foresee as catastrophic events. Mm -hmm. um, and, like, kind of over-preparing in a ridiculous manner, like building a giant underground tunnel and filling it with cans of food and whatnot. Yeah. Um, Actually, I think that's totally fine. I don't see a problem with that. Mm -hmm. But it's utterly stupid to not be prepared at all for a sort of emergency. Like, yeah. if you did not see COVID-19 coming to the U.S. and you tried to go out to buy your weekly supply of toilet paper, you know, that that was tough luck because yeah. <laughs> there was none. Yeah. Yeah, for varying reasons. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, like, even just being prepared in that sense, I think being prepared in everyday life is a beautiful thing. You yeah. know, like, just think about what's going to happen tomorrow or the day after that or the week after that. Yeah. You know, the, and the, there are, like, multiple levels of preparedness that you can achieve. There's, like, the day, the week, the month, the year, five years. Right. You know, um, and those are all things that you have to do in order to be a successful person. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this doesn't cost money like that. That's another part that I think people miss on because it's like, oh, well, that's nice that people can afford food stores, you know, or like stores of food and, and whatever else. And they can afford, you know, I don't know, their underground tunnel or, you know, I mean, I'm not knocking those because I, mm -hmm. I agree with you. I think they're totally valid. Um, I mean, a lot of a lot of this stuff is just having the knowledge of how to interact and engage with your environment you know, and, and, and what you can do when it, when, when these things do occur. You yeah, know? absolutely. The biggest part of pre preparedness is just knowing skills. Yeah. A lot of that knowledge is totally free or accessible for free in some form or some form or fashion. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's not locked. That kind of stuff isn't locked up in scientific journals. So, you know, get to know. And, and, and that's, that, that speaks well to, you know, if you can do it through fiction as well, I think that that's a great way, like learn these skills through, fiction or learn about possibilities through fiction. I mean, I've referenced, I don't know how many different movies or shows or books while we were having this conversation around ETs, but that's part of that speaks to the point is that when you like at least give yourself the permission to explore these possibilities 
you can consider, okay, what can I do to survive them if they did happen? And, um, and so I, I think exploring fiction is, is, you know, or doing that through fiction can be really, really key. And that's, and that's often free. And it can be fun too. Right. I think it's so fun to like set up a fictional scenario and imagine like, how do I get out of this? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. Um, and again, that doesn't cost anything, you know, you can just (laughs) do it. So, you know, don't, don't let, don't let money stop you in any of this. Okay. Well, speaking of fiction, I think, do you want to shift gears? Sure. Are we ready to get into the Michael Crichton novel? Let's do it. Uh, Let's, let's get into, let's talk about none other than the Andromeda strain. Of course, we're more talking about the film from 1971 of the Michael Crichton book, that being the Andromeda strain. Now, this is a book that years ago, uh, both of us had actually read. Um, I've been a fan of the movie for some time. And this is your first time having seen it, correct? Yeah, it is. Okay. So we kind of watched this like for my birthday weekend. It was part of that. And I, well, I got the Blu-ray and the Blu-ray was a recent re-release with a 4k restoration. I don't care about 4k, but you know, Blu-ray 1080p. I think that's, that's legit. Um, That arrow, uh, films put out. And so I was really excited to check this out. This is definitely a movie I've been wanting to have in my collection for a while. Um, just to quickly say on the Blu-ray, not a whole lot of special features, but I am looking forward to listening to the audio commentary of it, but it's something that I only recently got. So it was funny because you and I, Ellen, we were watching uh, enterprise. We've been doing a rewatch of star Trek enterprise and we got to an episode in the fourth season where I mean, just days after I had gotten the Blu-ray, and this was just days before we actually watched it, only a couple days before, that Trip, the character of Trip, Trip Tucker, the chief engineer aboard the Enterprise, where he mentions the Andromeda strain. Now, on Enterprise, they'll name drop movies all the time, and they're all Paramount films because at the time, Star Trek was Paramount. Uh, But I thought it was funny. I was like, wow, that's weird that I just got the Blu-ray for that. And I planned on, this is something I planned on for a while to watch for like my birthday weekend. Now, the reason that I plan to watch it for my birthday weekend is because I recognize that for a lot of people, this can be seen as a boring film, right? Like it's not, it's not the most intense. In fact, it's not, Except for maybe the last few minutes and spoiler alerts, folks, you know, but the movie's only been out since 1971. Who are these people? Yeah. <laughs> Except for the last few minutes, like there's, there's no intensity, you know, like, I mean, I mean, there's nothing like it's not, you know, it's funny. Just a, a couple of days previous, we watched Demolition Man with Stallone, right? Yeah. And these are like night and day. <laughs> That was practically endless action and glamour and flash and ridiculousness. Yeah, as to where this is a very straight ahead, accurate, like we talked about earlier in this episode, uh, scientifically accurate, medically accurate film for its time anyway. Um, But uh, it's from 1971, directed by Robert Wise, who who also did, he directed Fiddler on the Roof, one of my favorite movies. And he also directed Star Trek, the motion picture, which from 1979, which actually is my favorite movie. If I don't apply any of the rules that I usually apply to favorite films. Um, Now, not uninterestingly, Star Trek, the motion picture also gets accused of being very boring. Um, 
and like spends way too much time explaining what's going on and like getting into the nitty gritty and science of it. I think that's what's appealing about it. I happen to also think that's overall what's so appealing about the Andromeda strain is that like it's really meticulous in everything that's going on. It like its accuracy and its attention to detail is what party of part of what makes it such a uh, such a great movie. Very quickly, would would you agree with that sentiment? Yes, of course. Um, and in fact, the film takes itself seriously in that they were trying to paint this as a real occurrence. Right, right at the beginning. Yeah, it says like this is something. This is the like scariest ninety six hours or something in U.S. history. Um, these are this is you know from footage. It's like the real re- account, yeah. right, right? Of what happened? They're trying to make you think this is actually declassified information that you're watching in this movie, um, which is pretty pretty cool. But anyway, c- c- yeah, continue. But they, so, I mean, it has to by necessity follow the really slow scientific process, mm-hmm. um, and. I do think that that makes this film wonderful. I mean, I I really enjoyed looking at what they were doing and saying like, oh, I know that. I know that method or that piece of equipment. And yeah. it was just, it was amazing to see like, you know, if, if you are in this field, what you do is the same thing that it's the same sort of science that anyone would do anywhere in the world. Right. At right. any time in history. Yeah. And, and that's what's great about the scientific method. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, I feel like Robert Wise, and we'll talk a little bit what the movie's about, and we'll get into it, but I think Robert Wise was wise, but I'm uh, to I think he was following really the lead, and actually the the guy who was in charge of effects for this film was Douglas Trumbull, who's famous for working on 2001. Now in 2001, Stanley Kubrick's uh, you know, operating his method for making that film, his idea, his ideology behind the film was, and this is, this isn't controversial. He said it is that the more real you make this scene, the more people will buy what's happening on the screen. Meaning that you make, you make the, what's happening, the science of it all internally consistent and believable. And that will, because of its own internal consistency, people will buy what you're selling. Okay, what you're putting down. And I think Douglas, Doug Trumbull and Robert Wise followed those same rules in, uh, you know, in making this movie. I think they also did it. I think Robert Wise also did it for Star Trek motion picture where, all right, make it as internally consistent and plausible as possible and spend the time showing people how internally consistent it is. And they will accept and, and appreciate more what's going on. They took the rules from 2001, bottom line. Um, science fiction made today does not follow that rule anymore. Now they just, you know, they just flout the laws of science or even any kind of internal consistency and just don't give a shit about it. Um, but it used to be an important thing. And I think that's why a lot of these movies hold up and stand the test of time. Um, so I mean, did you get that sense of internal consistency in this film? Yeah. Uh, as well as external consistency, um, as in, this really could be plausible. If I didn't already know that it was a science fiction movie, I probably would have believed it was real. Right, right. Because it's literally, you know, so real. Yeah, and they're laying out, like, every, like, when they go to the different levels. Okay, here's the decontamination processes yes. you have to, and they show it all to they you. They explain everything. Right, right. And that, see, that speaks to what I was saying earlier about how a great way to get an, uh, a foundation of knowledge in really any field, but certainly in medical, is to take in this stuff 
that is recognized as being, you know, dead on, right. And being accurate. And, and then you can learn a lot about how all this works. And you can, you know, when you see them going through wildfire, which is the, uh, the scientific, um, or like the, the base that they set up. Yeah. It's a they, code name. Right. For, for a base, uh, that's set up as a giant lab, really, that goes however many feet or miles and underground. Um, and it has like five different levels and each one you have to go through de- different decontamination process and everything. Um, yeah, I mean, you see, you learn, wow, this is what it takes to really decontaminate and to really like make sure you're like virus free or something. And and it, it, it's fascinating, in my opinion. It's, it's really wild stuff. Um, but so anyway, the movie is basically about a extraterrestrial of all ironies virus, you know, and, and so it actually speaks to both things we've talked about in this episode, COVID-19 yeah. and ETs. Uh, so Best it, of both worlds. Yeah, it's both of them, and and they're both out to kill humanity. You know? <laughs> uh, or well, anyway, um, and so this this virus is, or what you know, they're not sure what it is at first. Uh, infects this town called or Piedmont, New Mexico, kills everybody there. Uh, it ends up getting studied, and basically before the um, lunar missions were done, you know, before the Apollo missions, this lead scientist, Doctor Stone. Uh, is he recommended to Congress, we should set up a, a lab where we can study, you know, any potential things that come from the lunar missions. And so that's what wildfire is. Um, and he, they end up, they do set it up and a scenario happens, like we said, in, P- in Piedmont, New Mexico, where they need to do this very thing. And so this is them solving this crisis of what ends up getting codenamed the, the virus ends up getting codenamed the Andromeda strain. Um, and, 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 and that's what we get um, in this film. Um, you have four main characters uh, basically who are like the real heroes. There's uh, Dr. Jeremy stone, who we mentioned is kind of the team leader. This definitely plays off like a classic sixties mission impossible episode in a very real way. And I think it's, I like it because of that, because I'm a big fan of Mission Impossible. There's also very clever use, admittedly. Robert Wise does a great job of using picture-in-picture cinematography to show you what's going on, where there's, like, multiple things happening on the screen at once in different areas. I thought that was really brilliant. Uh, Anyway, you have uh, Dr. Mark Hall, who's kind of the surgeon, you know, really the medical professional here. Uh, Dr. Charles Dutton, and then you have Dr. Ruth uh, Leavitt, who... In the book, I think it was actually a guy. I think it was like Paul Leavitt or something like that. Switching it to being a woman, I thought was a brilliant move uh, in this. And she becomes a bit of a crux in the film. She becomes crux and commentary, I think. But she becomes a a crux in the film because you find out she has epilepsy. And that creates uh, lapses in judgment or data of trying to solve this. And so it's a very quiet way of creating a tension and all of this, but she also is commentary in speaking of how women scientists were treated at the time. And it's one of the very ahead of time and brilliant moves on the film's part. I mean, what do you, what do you say to that with the character? I also, I think she's the best character in the movie. What, what would you say about? Oh, Dr. certainly. Ruth? She has the most character of any of them. I mean, yeah, she's commentary. ripping on everybody, government, everybody. Yeah, yeah. She's so scathing and it's hilarious to mm-hmm. see. <laughs> Um, but you're right. And after we watched this movie, I brought up to you, like, it was amazing how they gave her this condition just so they could have this one scene in the movie where they comment on how if 
she had told anyone, she wouldn't have been allowed to work in the top labs in the country because of prejudice. Right, right. And a guy says, Dr. Stone says Yeah, that. Yeah. And then the other guy, who I think is Dr. Hall, says, we're still living in the dark ages. Right, right. Now, yeah. Now, Robert Wise, initially, I guess, was not, he did not approve of the changing of, of like the changing of gender of characters, which is actually a very popular thing to happen today. Um, he said at the time, he's like, no, give me a really great reason to do it. And I think the writer gave him a great reason, which is exactly what you spoke about. It's like, here's our chance to comment on, you know, even though she's the best in the field and ahead of the curve and open-minded to things that the other three doctors were not. And she's no Mary Sue. Cause again, she has epilepsy, right? I mean, like, like that, that's just not part of it. This is why this movie, part of why this movie is so great. The writing, everything makes sense. Everything has a reason. Um, yeah, I, I, I just, I, I thought it was a brilliant move, you know, and I don't think Michael Crichton ever complained. Yeah. Um, and even at the beginning of the movie, when they first, when the team first assembles in mm-hmm. wildfire, uh, what, and they go off to their separate locker rooms or whatever, yeah. and they're getting ready for decontamination. I think it was Dr. Hall who's like, "Why? who invited her here? And Dr. S- or Mr. Stone is like, uh, well, she's the best in the field. We're lucky to have her. Yeah. And it was just so factual and just put that prejudice right down. Yeah. 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 So a movie that accurately reflected, you know, not just how how medicine, how science, you know, and a lot of this like scenarios would have been handled in, in 1970 or 1971. But it also, you know, really showed the the culture, you know, of those fields. Uh, at the time. And so it, it's certainly a time capsule. Unfortunately, you kind of got to wonder if, if how much has changed as far as culturally, you know, in, in all of that. It's but, funny you keep saying culture because she's a microbiologist and that's what she does. She cultures yeah, right. herself. <laughs> it, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. I keep wanting to say that. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. That's all right. <laughs> um, yeah. So like there's one scene where I think the tension gets the highest, where she is looking at a bunch of cultures mm-hmm. and like you notice that she's completely like her eyes are glazed over and she's not paying attention. And right. that's when you realize like this ep- epilepsy is really a problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, even I think even, so, cause there's a point where she basically, she has a stroke, you know, foaming at the mouth, the whole thing. Well, that's, that's a full on seizure. Or, or I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Full on seizure. And, um, and like the reaction to these people who are working in the most advanced medical lab, apparently, you know, arguably in the world, wildfire, they think she's infected, then they won't touch her. And it's like, no, you know, and, and, and Dr. Hall's there saying, it's like, no, 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 she's, she's having a seizure. Like, come help her, you know, get me this down here. She's not infected. Stop. You know? And so like, even displaying like the reality of this film is what's so powerful about it, because even that is showing, you know, even people that have the knowledge well, you know, you, tensions are high enough. They're going to fuck up. Right. Yeah. And, and I also, I, I really loved even the character of Dr. Hall because he's the one that, you know, so, so wildfire is set up that if they can't solve the problem, a nuke goes off. Right. Right. To destroy the entire facility. So there's no chance of contamination. Exactly. Exactly. Now what they find out with the Andromeda strain is that actually a nuclear explosion would feed it. And it would mutate and it would probably end up wiping out, you know, like that would be the worst thing that could possibly happen to it, which I also like that too, because that basically ripped on, and this movie ripped on government 
pretty pretty well. Yeah. Uh, throughout the whole thing, ripping on the president, everything, which you're not going to get that. And today. his advisors. Yeah, yeah. It's like you idiots, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> but it was great because it showed, you know, what the military can't solve this, and a nuke cannot solve this problem. In no, fact, it's it just going to make it worse. It. Right. Uh, which I thought was really cool. But now, so Dr. Hall is chosen as the guy who is the one that can stop the nuke from going off. He has a key to stop it, right? Yeah, and it's really strange how they choose him. They show him, like, test results and and statistical analysis showing mm-hmm. that, like, a single male is the best person to make this kind of decision. And they compared it to, like, single females, uh Married men, married women, and right. like somehow single males can make the best judgment. Yeah, well, I think so. So Dr. Stone calls it the odd man out hypothesis. And I think that's something Michael Crichton made up. But anyway, it, the idea is, is that that's the person that has uh, maybe nothing to nothing to lose. And that if the nuke has to go off, he's not worried. Oh, but my daughter. Oh, but my, you know, I mean, like he's the guy that would have the guts basically to do it. Um, and there's probably why a single woman wouldn't, maybe they would say, oh, but her motherly platitudes. I mean, so even then I'm sure there's some degree of what could be seen as sexism or so on, uh, that, that would be there, but that is interesting. But what's really interesting about that is that they definitely play him off and Dr. Ruth, like, you know, uh, comments on this often that he's, he's an arrogant asshole. Like he's kind of a superstar surgeon and he's a jerk. Well, because he's the best surgeon right. in in his field. You right, know? right. I mean, so he can, it's not boasting if you can back it up, right? I mean, exactly. So it seems like he could back it up. But I thought it was interesting in that he's the one that actually becomes really selfless and takes on at the end, because he has to climb up this tube where there's like these security lasers that are frying you. If they, and he, he gets shot up a couple times, you know, by these lasers. And the fact that, like, you know, don't judge the book by its cover, right? Okay, you think he's this arrogant asshole, but actually he's the most empathetic of the bunch. And they keep showing that throughout the film, even though you think he's this jerk, like he, you know, he's really flamboyant or he's really arrogant or whatever. Uh, he's the one who's always like, hey, you know, those aren't those aren't uh, uh, test subjects. Those are people down there. Yeah, that was a really interesting character trait. And mm-hmm. I, I think it does go to show, like, even if you are. Um, like proud of your accomplishments, even if you know that you're a very skilled person and you don't mind saying so, that doesn't mean that you don't care about other people. Yeah. 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 So I I thought that was, that was a, and it's strange that you even say that he's being a jerk, but he's the most empathetic one. Like, what does that mean in the context of this film being a jerk? It's not like he was rude to anyone. No, but I I think, I think they, they kind of like played off as that. And even like one of the, one of the better lines or one of the best lines in the movie is where they're going through him and stone are hall and stone are going through the town of Piedmont and like, they're trying to figure out what happened. And he just like tears this guy's pants off. And he says to Dr. Stone, he says, look at this man's buttocks, you know? And then Dr. Stone's like, that's not funny. <laughs> you know? Cause like, I guess he thinks he's like a prankster or something. Like he just mm-hmm. has this reputation. Uh, and so I feel like they, they try to lead that, but this actually leads to one of the, I think one of the problems with the film and let me know if you agree the character development, while there's some interesting things in it, the character development's a little shallow. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you don't get to see what these people's lives are really like before the wildfire incident happens. Right. Right. Um, but you get some you, quick you shots, do get a brief introduction before mm-hmm. they go into the facility. Um, but yeah, that is one thing that the film could have improved on. 
a little more is like, you know, we want to know these people, although they do get, you know, they each get their own character development moments. Sure. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, yeah, it, it is. It just, it does feel like one of the failings. And I think besides the thrilling climb against all the laser uh, uh, turrets, you know, that Dr. Hall goes on at the end, again, there's, there's like no like action scene really at all. Um, well, when the alarm first starts going off, when there's a breach, a oh, contamination yeah. breach. Yeah. And one of the doctors, I think it was Dutton, he was stuck in the laboratory. Right. And he was talking to Stone via camera saying yeah. like, oh, I'm really scared. Yeah. Tensions, I guess tensions get heightened in the last 15 minutes of this movie. And it's a two hour film. Okay. And, and they, I mean, everything happens in the last like 15 minutes, basically. And I think it's a payoff. I think it's a worthy payoff. What do you I got? don't know. I, I don't agree with that. I mean, the whole film is the process of discovery. Yeah, right. And right. that is the thrilling part of it. Yeah. There's there's more excitement in the last 15 minutes. I'll give you that. But, I mean, the thrill is is building as you make discoveries about the Andromeda strain. Yeah. Now, I don't disagree with you. Like, I actually... So, so basically, it's our 45 minutes of process, 15 minutes of action. What, what do you say to that? Or 15 minutes of tension and emotion and action. Okay. Okay. I like me personally, I like the hour and 45 minutes a lot better. Okay. This is, I I've said this actually about another Michael Crichton film. I say this often. I love the first 45 minutes of Jurassic park. The other hour, eh, you know, I take her to leave it, you know, like, <laughs> like all the action and the thrill and all. I, I, I don't care. You know, like that, that's nice. But I loved just seeing a possible representation of what something like a Jurassic park would look like. Just like in this, I love the concept of wildfire, you know, and, and what that, not from government funding, of course, but I love the concept in the abstract and like this whole process and seeing that process, that's, what's really cool to me. Um, I don't think there's many people anymore that are into that, into things that way. And that's, a, that's a shame, but cause that's like, like I mentioned mission impossible, the sixties mission impossible was not the action schlock, which I still like the new mission impossible movies too, but um, the sixties mission impossible, it was all process, you know, until like the last five minutes. But I like that. I, I like that kind of storytelling. I like seeing how the sausage gets made, you know, I yeah. guess. Um, so, so I'm with you. I'm with you. I, I, I think that that, but I wouldn't have minded if there was a little more thrill somewhere in there. There's a little problem. There were more tensions too. Like they had communications breakdowns mm -hmm. where they there was supposed to be like a what was it a seventeen oh, a, a seven twelve or yes. something like yep. that. Um, yeah, there was supposed to be a nuke dropped on the city in New Mexico where mm -hmm. the plague first struck, um, but it wasn't happening. Right. And and they kept trying to send messages out and they weren't being received for some reason. Finally, they get through to the people in Washington saying, like, you need to drop this nuke right now. Right. And then they they discover, like, oh, shit, this thing is going to absorb the radiation and grow like crazy. So then yeah. they have to, like, get back to them really quickly and say, don't do it. Uh, yeah. So there's another point of tension. Um, there's plenty of, I, I think, things that are really thrilling about this movie and... I don't think that you have to have like shooting and stabbing to achieve that. I agree. No, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I think. So talk about some of the particulars of the film. I think the effects were, those were some, those there's actually really, really early CGI in that. 
um, really early and it looks great. Um, I think to this day, it still looks really, really solid. Um, that was cool. I mean, I think it, you know, technically this is a perfect film. What would you say to that? Yes. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah. I have no problems with it. Like there's nothing wrong with it, you know, no, like, as, as far as presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, Robert Wise, of course, is one of the greatest directors to ever live. I mean, he, I think he delivered on this and, and delivered something very, very unique. Uh, the music is very interesting because it's all, it's an all electronic score, kind of like Forbidden Planet, but there's so little of it. In fact, it's mainly just used to transition between scenes. It's rarely ever used during the scenes. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was clever because you're basically, you're creating, you're trying to create a quiet tension within the process. Yeah. And, and it, when the music does hit, it hits you twice as hard. Go ahead. Yes. And it also makes you feel like you're actually there in the room with them. Right. Yeah. 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 Oh, no. See, I never exactly thought about that. That's a great perspective because you're right. That makes it all the more real because when you're conducting surgery, there wouldn't be music behind you. Well, okay, I know some surgeons who actually do play music when they are in surgery, but, but when you're five stories underground and you're, you're not playing, looking music. at cultures, right? No music. Yep. That's, that is, that's very true. It's very true. Did you ever watch house? Uh, occasionally. Yeah. I think house basically just lifted the Andromeda strain and they just put like a whack job in charge. You know? <laughs> it was like a drug addict or whatever. And I always, I actually, I hate that. I, I don't have a problem with drugs. I just, I don't like it when a, a drug addict is like, an, is, is, I see it as a, uh, easy heat. Like easy, it's like easy drama, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, he has a drug problem. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, this is so tragic, you know, as to where it's just, it's, it's a, it's a cheap shot in my opinion. But anyway, no, nobody in this movie had that. Um, well, no, but Ruth was addicted to smoking. Oh, that's, she, oh yeah. She couldn't have any cigarettes yeah. when she was down there. No she caffeine. About it. Uh, they, they couldn't even eat sugar. They had to eat these nutritional pills right. and this drink that had vitamins dissolved in it. Yeah. Another thing. I think this movie is laugh out loud funny. Like, yeah. like and, and like the the jokes land even to this day. I I really I think they land. Um one of the other really great characters in this movie was <laughs> a survivor from the town of New Mexico or from, the town in New Mexico. Yeah. yeah. Um so there are two survivors. There's a five-month-old baby and a 69-year-old man. Yeah. And this man, he he <laughs> drank. Sterno drinker. He, he drank Sterno. <laughs> he did all sorts of, I don't know what else he did, but yeah. he drank Sterno to help with his uh, <laughs> stomach ulcers. <laughs> and like one of the first things he asked for when he woke up was like, give us a butt, will you? Yeah. <laughs> or he's like, he's looking over at the woman helping out Dr. Hall, the, the, the nurse. He's like, you're the nurse? She, yeah. Damn, I can't see your legs. <laughs> you know, yeah. she's in like this full suit. <laughs> <laughs> He's even like trying to feel her up, which is so terrible, but it was really but funny it, because she's in this giant suit. But it's the it's real, you know, <laughs> yeah. like like that. That's probably how that'd go down. And, and so it's just, it's outrageous. Um, what did he call this Cerno originally? He was like, I do the dragon tail or something like that. Something like, yeah. And the doctor, Sto- Dr. Hall's like, what is that? And he's like, not going to tell you. Not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and then i mean i don't know if i want to give it away but i think it's the fu- it's the best it's one of the best scenes of the film if not the best and so funny like because the baby's always crying yeah obviously. the baby is just a constant screamer yeah, and especially because they're not feeding it because they're trying to find out what's wrong and they're seeing like you know if, if, if not giving it food you know would, would be part of like why did the baby survive you know 
And so it's just constantly crying. And there's a point where just the guy, like there, there, there's a camera in the room where the two, where the, the 69 year old man, and I think his name's Jim or whatever. And the baby are there and he just kind of walks by and, and like the nurse is saying, can I please feed this baby? And the guy, and you just see his head kind of float by. He's like, that's a hell of a way to run a hospital. <laughs> it's just so goddamn funny. And, and, and Ruth is, she's hilarious. Like when she mm-hmm. sees blinking lights in the beginning, she kind of like holds her head against it and you don't know what's going on. Eventually you realize that she's epileptic. But, you know, the guy's like, well, you don't, he's like, what's wrong? She's like, you know, you don't like red, red lights. He's like, yeah, it just reminds me of my time when I was a hooker or something like that. When she lived in the Bordello district. Oh, yeah. When she lived in the Bordello district. (laughs) So great. So, I mean, so, yeah, it's, it's such a solid film. I mean, I get it like that, that there's not a, it feels like there's not a lot going on. It's plotting with D instead of T's. Um, you know, I, I understand where people see that, but then they're not appreciating, like, this is how hyper real this film is. And I think it just deserves a ton of respect for that alone. Like, this is how it would really get done. And if you're somebody who actually appreciates kind of like we were talking about you earlier, Ellen, when you appreciate the process, this, this movie's a masterpiece. I mean, like I imagine people, I imagine doctors and scientists looking at wildfire at that lab. The way I look at like uh, a model. The yeah, Enterprise. we're just salivating over it. Like, oh, that sterilization yeah, is so right. perfect. Right. I, I can totally imagine. You're just like, oh, my. Oh, I wish I had wildfire. Oh, uh, it's so hot. I yeah. would do anything to work in that laboratory. Right. Right. <laughs> I can totally picture that. I mean, come on. Seriously. Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that's great. Even if that's not exactly like my speed. I totally respect that. I, I think that's dynamite, you know, to, to, to give people that, that, that sort of thing. So yeah, I, I think it's a brilliant film. Um, you got more comments you want to, you want to make on it? Anything you want to add in? Yeah. I thought like the revelation of the Andromeda strain was not disappointing. Like you finally get to see it under a microscope. Oh yeah. Um, and it just, it looks beautiful. Right. Like, and the explanations for how it does what it does are so spot on. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's just really incredible. Um, and it's something that I felt was really plausible. I never doubted it the entire time. And that's kind of what made the film so fun. Yeah. Like, you're looking at this thing under the microscope and it's replicating. But it's not like Tribbles where they just replicate infinitely without a mm-hmm. food source. Like, this thing can, can consume light. You know, right. X-ray right. radiation. Right. Um. So yeah, it's it's just really amazing to see that and to be able to believe it. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think so. Correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, ultimately, what happens is the Andromeda strain basically mutates to a non-lethal form. Yeah. So there's a point in the film where a guy is flying over the town in New Mexico where everyone was wiped out. Right. And in a jet in a Phantom F4. Yeah. yeah. And uh he crashes. Yeah. And they find out that like something ate away literally all of the plastic in the plane as right. well as his flesh. Right. Um and this happens and then it happens just about like slightly afterwards in the wildfire facility where um the the mutation occurs to where it starts eating away all of like all of the seals in the facility are made out of plastic, the rubber or whatever. Yeah. Or it's plastic. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's how the contamination first occurs, like the containment breach and mm-hmm. the alarm starts going off and he has to run to shut off the nuclear device. Um, 
But essentially what happens is all the plastic gets eaten away and um, it's not killing anything anymore, which originally it killed things so fast they were making comments like, you couldn't get death that quickly if you slit his throat. Right. You know, it was like within a few seconds of being exposed, you were just dead. And the way this thing worked was it was like coagulating your blood on contact. Yeah. Um, So anyway... It mutates to where it doesn't do that anymore, but now it just eats all the plastic and it escapes the facility and travels around the world. Yeah, I mean, they set up like things in the clouds, they say, basically, that would help kind of neutralize it, I guess. Yeah, and I think in the novel, actually, what happens is it ends up going back out into space. Mm -hmm. Like it just leaves the Earth because it's not a very... It doesn't grow as well in oxygen as it does in like a complete vacuum with x-rays. Right. Right. So because it initially comes from a satellite that crashes. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Now, I mean, there's one I want to speak to that because there's one other point. There is a confrontation. And in this movie, all confrontations are pretty low key by comparison um, where it where where they the other doctors basically find out, hey, wait a minute. Wildfire is being used by the military to test or prepare for bio war. Yeah, they see maps of, they see like bio-war maps. Yeah, yeah. And they get pissed off about it. And Dr. Stone tries to like write it off. It's like, you don't understand what they're doing. And they're like, no, we're not working for the fucking military. We're not doing this. That's not what this is about and all that, which I thought that was a great message too. Yeah, the scientists really don't want to be working for any sort of war. Right, right. And actually at the beginning of the film, uh, Ruth, she she's basically telling, because the, the army goes to pick up everybody to take them to wildfire. And Ruth is like, I'm not going with you. Fuck you. Get out of here. You know, yeah, like, tell him I burned my draft card. Yeah, it's actually she's that's what she says. She's like, Yeah, I burned my draft card, you know. <laughs> so, uh, but And then they show up to the facility and there's a cornfield, and she's like, Well, there's a heck of a way to grow pot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I mean the, the funny thing is, is I feel like one of the messages of the film, if not maybe the ultimate message of it, like humanity doesn't solve this. No. Like, the, like, you know, they survive it, but like, they're wild, lucky. Yeah. And, and in fact, wildfire doesn't even, it allows them to understand it, but it doesn't give them the resolution. It doesn't give them the solution. No, it just gives them enough time to where it mutated so it could escape and leave. Right. Which is really fortunate. Like they do mention that every time this thing replicates, it's also mutating. Mm-hmm. It's like constantly mutating and growing. Right. Um. So I guess it was just a matter of time until it became non-lethal. But there was no way for them to know that in the beginning. Yeah. So I think it has a very interesting message of the hubris of man to think that he can somehow solve uh, or control, you know, nature. There are definitely things beyond our control. Yeah. And, you know, throwing a nuke at it's not going to solve it. Nope. Right. And that, you know, wildfire, you know, uh, the military, whatever their intentions were for it, all of that, none of that. And this movie also does a great job of making the military look like idiots because <laughs> yeah, like they're, they're kind of like the, the, the lead general or whatever is like, Oh, that, that pilot just crashed. It was yeah. a fluke. It was a fluke. That's what happened, you know? And, yeah. and again, you're almost never going to get that in modern cinema where unless they want to make fun of the president that's in office at the time, you'll never see the military really get ripped on anymore in, in, in movies. So uh, you got to love it for that. Um, yeah, I, I think it has some very powerful, accurate, scientifically accurate messages, and uh, it shows what, 
what a real life scenario like this, I think could look like. I mean, I imagine there's things like wildfire on, on earth, you know, that there's like disaster scenario labs like that. Uh, just a fascinating film to watch. What, I mean, what, what would you give it out of 10? Oh gosh. See, you asked me this yesterday and I said eight, but I feel like now I want to bump it up to a nine. Wow. Right on. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the only thing that it's missing is the character development. Yep. Yep. I, and, no, I, and like a little bit more excitement. Yeah, no, exactly. That I, I completely agree. That's the only thing keeping it from being like an absolute 10. Yeah. Because if you had a little more of that, I think everybody would recognize it as holy shit. What a movie. Again, yeah. it's technically perfect. Yeah, right. And it's, again, accurate. I mean, it, you know, this is, it's it, it's arguably science fiction. It is dealing with ETs. It is yeah, dealing with, you know, um, uh, I mean, this is as hard a hard science fiction movie as you could get. I mean, I, I really, I can't think of one harder. Uh, and I love it for it. And so, yeah, I will definitely second that nine out of 10 and for the same reasons that you mentioned. Um, I even, again, the music's very unconventional, but I think it totally, totally works. I haven't heard an unconventional score. Like, the only other movie I can think of instantly when I think of really unconventional use of scores would be the matrix with Don Davis and, and him uh, issuing melody throughout the entire film. I thought that was, that was brilliant and adds to the, adds to the nature of what's going on and to the surrealness of what's going on. And in this movie, I think the lack of music, it's almost like a great drummer that knows when not to play. Uh, and, and, and it just worked. So uh, yeah, every technically this movie is absolutely perfect. You know, presentation wise, absolutely perfect. So yeah, nine out of 10. Um, and then the night after we watched the Andromeda strain, we watched blade. <laughs> we watched Wesley Snipes, 1998 classic Blade. Tons uh, of vampire action. That's action. And, you know, I, I mean, I've, I've said this on Sovereign Tech before because I think I might have even reviewed the movie before. We won't, we won't necessarily review it here. But uh, but that, that was a stark contrast. But, like, I've even <laughs> – I was telling you, I was like, now, if we ever watch Blade 2, Blade 2 is the movie that I tell everybody where that was the first time where I watched a movie and I sat down and I said, you know what? I think that was too much action. <laughs> too much action. <laughs> The, it is the antithesis of the Andromeda strain. It, 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 I mean, it absolutely is. But maybe maybe we'll get to watching that at some point. But Blade was, that was fun. Yeah. That's a review for another time. That's a review for another time. <laughs> I will say this. All right, let me get this out. Let me end this off with a unique thought. because we're, we're over three hours. This, this might be the longest episode of Sovereign Tech ever. <laughs> you say uh, that every time I'm on. <laughs> I know, I know. But that's it. When you get, you know, well. All right, I'm, I'm just going to say, when you get two brilliant fucking people in a room, you know, I mean, hit the mics and let's see what happens. Yes. So uh, anyway, I had an epiphany while we were watching Blade. There is a point, and we talked about this this morning over breakfast. There was a point where uh, the character, the, the main villain, um, Frost, Deacon Frost, is sitting in his, I guess, in his apartment bedroom. This bedroom is all white, looks very advanced, has this very interesting bed that's like a clamshell bed where the top actually lowers down as well on it. And it's nice red, you know, velvet or whatever is inside there. Um, but you could see where it'd be like a, you know, it'd block out the sun, obviously. Block uh, out all light. Yeah, it'd block out like almost all senses. Yeah. You know, it's almost like a sensory deprivation tank of some kind. Mm -hmm. But it's in this really like classy white room. Everything's bright white, very clean and all this, you know, and clearly like if you wanted to see blood somewhere, that's a room where you'd see it because everything's white. And like, it has this very, I mean, it looks very futuristic. Um, 
But, you know, it's it, the movie doesn't take place in the future. It's just in 1998. But there's one thing that looks out of place in that room. Now, he's dressing in black, which I think is part is to, like, set him apart from the room. Um, but also he has an Apple laptop, an old power book in there, which would have been the modern computer at the time and one of the most powerful laptops in the world, quite frankly. And it has the old Apple logo on it. This is before they even had did the iMac thing and everything. Um, I saw that power book and I said, I was like, now, now those kinds of deals with Apple, those were just starting to become a thing. Like Independence Day made a big deal about having uh, an Apple laptop. Like they did commercials about it and everything. Those kind of movie deals were, were not, it's not as commonplace now. We're now sure everybody in movies has an Apple because supposedly they matter when, you know, and, and it's what cool people use when that's not even remotely the truth. Um, but I think, I think Steve Jobs probably asked, because he had just come back in as CEO. And I think he probably asked, so let's look at our present contracts. Where, where are Apple showing up and everything? Where can I show off the iMac? He was probably taking, taking inventory of that. And I bet he saw that movie. I think he saw Blade. I think he saw that room. And he saw his ugly ass, by comparison, his ugly ass power book <laughs> in that room. And he went, oh no, we've got it all wrong. Like, I would not be surprised, actually, if... Johnny Ives, or is either Jobs or Johnny Ives, the designer, okay? I would not be surprised if they saw that movie, they saw that room, and they saw the Apple in there, and they said, holy shit, that room is the future, and our computers look all wrong. And Blade literally uh, 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 reinvigorated Apple computers without them even knowing it. I, I think this movie... the the, the Blade is an important movie in, in a lot of ways because it's also like one of the few genuinely great comic book movies. Uh, and, and it's very adult. Uh, anyway, I could get into a big conversation about that. We'll do the review another time. Yeah. Yeah. But I just want to bring this up. I'm serious. I think, and I've never seen, and I've read plenty of books about how, you know, the Johnny Ives came up with his ideas. I don't know. He was doing LSD or some shit. Who knows? Whatever. I think where it really came from, I think they watch Blade. Because David Goyer, who wrote that, he is brilliant. I think they saw that and they said, holy shit, that's what our computers need to look like. They need to look like they would fit in that room or they need to look like that room. And that started the whole goddamn thing. They wanted to class up the Apple. Really? I, I, I think that I think that's it. I, I, I think that's because they were trying to get into colleges and that's certainly where Apple dominated. Right. Like mo the reason most people I know we got to wrap this up, but. The reason most people have an Apple is not because they buy Apple computers. It's because their parents buy them because you get a discount if you're a student at a college. Okay, a significant one at that. Uh, it's because their parents buy it for them. And Apples are such good computers. And they are. They're such good computers that they last for like a decade. Okay, so most people that have an Apple, they actually don't have the latest Apple. They have one from five years ago that's still running great. And kudos to that, okay? But bottom line being is that that's, that's why it seems like the cool people have apples, right? It's because, I mean, effectively, once these young people get into their 30s, then they all buy PCs because they have to pay for it themselves, you know, and they don't have the money that their parents had or whatever. Um, you know, so I think Apple probably, all right, we want that crowd that goes to those those kinds of parties or whatever, you know, right? 
or we want that younger crowd that the vampires were kind of representing. And the vampires are also representative of a degree of, immort- of immortality, right? I think they saw they saw their demographic. They saw what they were going for, and they said, our computers look like shit in that demographic and we've got to appeal to that. And, 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 and I, yeah, I think blade, I think blade, Steve jobs did not reinvigorate Apple. Johnny Ives did not reinvigorate Apple. I think the movie blade did. They owe, they owe David Goyer a check. That's the bottom line. So that's what I've got. Anyway, that check it out, folks. Go ahead. Look it up. Look it up. You you go watch the movie. You're going to see that room like two or three times in the film. It's fairly prominent, prominent things happen there. And you see that, especially especially in 1080p, you see that laptop and you see that Apple logo. No problem. You can't fucking miss it. And I, I think that's where everything changed. So just a theory on my part. Anyway, that was fun. Ellen, thank you so much uh, for being on the show again. And sorry about my little diatribe at the end, because everything you had to say in this episode was far more fascinating than anything I had to lay out. <laughs> but you enjoyed Blade. Right? Yeah, yeah. And I enjoy that you tell people about our breakfast conversations, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do tell them a lot of they're, shit, don't We I? have great breakfast conversations. Yeah, they're fucking amazing. Talk about a place where you should have a microphone. Man. <laughs> Ooh, yeah, some mornings. I mean, th- there was that one morning where we we literally, over breakfast, we were having oatmeal. We solved every single problem on the planet. But then we forgot. And Yeah. You know. It, yeah, you know, it. like, this is just, we're making a tribute to that. <laughs> <laughs> There's that tenacious Steve. <laughs> yeah, this baby. is not the greatest song in the world. It's just a tribute. <laughs> this is not the greatest breakfast conversation. <laughs> that one's for you, Chris, baby. Anyway, uh, so, uh, um, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, so a lot of fun. Uh, we will wrap this one up, and we will see all of you woo, on the other side. And hey, I'm sure we'll have Ellen back along. I'll be back. Ooh, oh, I like that. All right, let's see you on the other side. Thank you for listening to Sovereign Tech. An Osiris One production. Now go out there and make some trouble. Hey there, Sovereign Tech listeners. Uh, You know, I had a thought. I said, this episode's already so long. Why don't I, as a bonus, after the credits roll, why don't I go ahead and have Alexander Went talk for himself in his TEDx talk, which is linked in the show notes. But I thought, you know, eh, it's 12 minutes or so. It'd actually be a lot of fun to just include it in the episode in case you want to hear it here. So I'm not going to come back at the end of it. I'm just going to let this ride out, but about, about 13 minutes. This is from February 4th, 2020 link is in the show notes. If you actually want to see the video, but I thought it'd be great. I talked with Ellen about it. She thought it'd be a cool idea to have it be all inclusive. So you can hear uh, that big conversation we had. You can actually hear the audio of the video of Alexander went uh, with his TEDx at uh, TEDx talk at TEDx Columbus. So without further ado, I will leave it here with Alexander went. Enjoy. Thank you all for coming. Uh, my name is Alex Went. I'm a professor of political science here at Ohio State. Uh, before that, I taught at Yale, Dartmouth, and the University of Chicago. I'm well known in my field of international relations, and I have a serious reputation that I have no intention of squandering today. 
Um, and I say that because what I'm going to do today is break a taboo. A taboo deeply held in the scientific and academic community especially, but also in the government, the news media, and all modern institutions of modern society hold this taboo. And the taboo is on taking UFOs seriously. And by that I mean three things. First, there's a taboo on admitting in public that UFOs exist, that they're real. Second, that some of those UFOs might be, might be extraterrestrial. And third, it's also forbidden to do science on UFOs to find out one way or the other. And I want to say a few more words about that last point because it's kind of surprising when you think about it. Human beings are incredibly curious creatures. We will study anything we do not understand if given the, given the possibility. In fact, we are so curious that we have spent hundreds of millions of dollars building giant radar telescopes to look for signs of intelligent life around distant stars, for which there's no evidence whatsoever. But when it comes to UFOs, not a cent. The scientific community has never done any serious, sustained, systematic study of UFO phenomena. And that's in spite of the fact that if it were found that some UFOs were ETs, or extraterrestrials, it would be one of the most important events in human history. And yet scientists give us only silence and or ridicule for people who are UFO believers. Okay. And of course that's because they believe that UFOs don't exist. So my first challenge in challenging this taboo is to make the case that UFOs actually are real phenomena. And to do that, I need to start with a very clear definition of what a UFO is. Most of us, when we hear the term, we automatically associate UFOs with ETs, little green men, although it turns out they're probably gray, but little green men um, who pilot UFOs. And um, that's, that equation of UFO and uh, ETs is fundamentally mistaken. Okay? A UFO is nothing but an unexplained aerial phenomenon. And you can divide these into roughly two groups. There's the larger group is cases where, with a bit more study, a bit more probing, we could probably figure out that the likely explanation for this UFO was a stealth fighter, or a drone, or some kind of natural phenomenon, satellites or whatever. Okay. Those are uninteresting UFOs, let's call them temporary UFOs. Okay. The kind of UFOs I'm interested in, let's call genuine, and this is about 5 to 20% of the cases that we have. And these are cases of UFOs that don't have an obvious conventional explanation. These are the ones that I'm interested in for the rest of the talk today. Okay. And what I want to do now is uh, bring in the authority of the US Navy to make, help me make the case that genuine UFOs are real. And to do that, I want need to do a bit of background and talk about pilot reports. Okay. Civilian and military pilots have been reporting UFOs since World War II. Some pilots have reported their incidents to their commanding officers or whatever. Many pilots have not because of fears of ridicule and so on. But in the past few years, um, fighter pilots especially in the United States and elsewhere have begun to become more and more vocal about what they perceive as the safety hazards that UFOs pose to their personal operations in the sky. In particular, UFOs routinely penetrate prohibited military airspaces and more from the pilot's point of view of concern, UFOs sometimes fly dangerously close to UFOs, to pilots themselves, literally 50 feet away. And so pressure from the pilots led the US Navy this year, and this was a big story in the New York Times, 
um, led the U.S. Navy to an official policy change on how they handle UFO reporting. In the past, they would always ignore their pilots' reports. Now they are working on a procedure to require their pilots to report something. Okay. So the U.S. Navy has taken a big step in this way. And in justifying this policy change publicly, one thing they've done is they released two very short clips, video clips, of UFOs that their fighter pilots had taken. They probably have dozens or maybe hundreds of these clips, who knows, but these are the two they've released. They're about a minute long, and I want to just play them for you so that you can get a sense of what a genuine UFO looks like. Okay. Dude, this is a fucking drone, bro. There's a whole fleet of them, look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, I think, dude. That's not an LNS, though, is it? It's not. That is an LNS, dude. Well, if there's a like other thing, it's rotating. So those are two UFO reports um, from fighter pilots just from a couple years ago. If you notice in the very first one, the guy said, did you know there's a fleet of them out there? So it wasn't just one, it was a whole fleet of those things that was flying. Um, but whatever you or I may think is in those videos, the Navy has officially classified them as unidentified. And what that means is that they've done some homework and they've basically ruled out all the standard conventional explanations for these two cases and probably many other cases as well. And so what they're in effect saying is there's something on that video, it's real, it's not a hoax or it's not an illusion, there's something on that video, those videos, it's real, but they just don't know what it is. Okay. So to my mind, the Navy has just um, pr well proven or at least established that genuine UFOs are real. Now, are they ETs also? That's a totally separate question, okay? It's quite possible that even those genuine UFOs have no ETs involved in them at all, okay? But um, it's important in this respect to, I think, listen to the pilots, okay? Um, well, actually, on the, ET, on the UFO ET question, um, the Air Force said nothing, or the Navy said nothing about ETs at all when they released those uh, videos. Neither pro nor con, okay? So nobody has a clue. But it's important, I think, to listen to the pilots because they have reported many times UFOs having aerodynamic capabilities that seem to far exceed anything possessed by human societies. Uh, for example, right turns at 5,000 miles an hour, extraordinary rates of acceleration, and so on. Things that seem impossible according to our laws of physics. On the other hand, just a little over a century ago, our laws of physics told us that air travel was impossible, much less space travel. So imagine a civilization that's just a thousand years ahead of us, which is really just a blip historically. Imagine what kind of technology they would have, much less a civilization that is a million years ahead of us. 
Okay? To us, what they could do in our skies might look like complete magic. So I think if we're totally honest with ourselves, we have to admit first, with the Navy, that genuine UFOs are real, okay? And secondly, that we really have no idea, that we are ignorant, not only of what the UFOs are, but we're ignorant of whether or not they are ETs, okay? And that leads to my punchline, okay? Which is that if any UFOs are ETs, then we are not only ignorant, but in my view, we are truly stupid if we're not using science to try to find out what's going on. Um, and because the first question that comes up, if, if they are here, if, okay, if they are here, the first question that comes up is, well, why? Okay. And there are a lot of options here, which we have no clue about, but just consider a couple examples. It might be an Independence Day scenario. So they're here to exterminate us, and they just haven't got around to it yet. Okay. <laughs> on the other hand, they might be here to help with climate change. Okay. But they're reluctant to land on the White House lawn, because they know that if they do so, there'll be a panic in the streets, the stock market will collapse, and governments will lose control. Either way, any kind of up-close, personal contact between human beings and an alien civilization here on our planet would be an extraordinarily profound and probably disruptive event for all of humanity. Okay? And that alone, to me, justifies investing in a science of UFOs to find out what, this is, what all this is about. So what would such a science look like? There are different models for this that have been proposed. The one I like is the idea of a ground-based network of automated surveillance stations, each of them equipped with the sky, sky cameras like this guy, um, but also other simple instruments, and they would monitor the sky 24-7 looking for UFOs, and then comes along, they immediately start recording as much data as they can. Okay. Ideally, the government or the scientific community would build such a network, but they are still in UFO denial. Those are heads in the sand right there. Um, so we're unlikely, I think, to see governments funding UFO research anytime soon, despite the Navy admitting that UFOs are real. Okay? The good news, though, and ironically, is that this is not rocket science. Okay? The camera technology we have today is extremely sophisticated and also surprisingly cheap. So, in my view, it would be possible to uh, organize and build the building of such a network through an, a scientific nonprofit funded essentially through the internet by crowdfunding. Okay. Either way, a top-down science or a bottom-up science, it seems to me that applying some science to this phenomenon would tell us something more than we know now, which is essentially nothing. Okay. So, two last final points. First of all, why is this a taboo at all? Okay. Why is it that pilots, scientists, even political scientists, need to worry about their reputations to talk about this issue in public. Okay? Why don't we treat UFOs the way we treat everything else that we don't understand, which is the scientists all go rush and try to study it. But in this case, the scientists won't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I think a clue to this idea of why the taboo exists is in the word taboo itself, because taboos are about fear cultural fears, usually. And I think my suggestion here is that perhaps the reason this taboo is so powerful is that we are afraid, subconsciously, of what we might find out if we actually opened up the door of science and tried to understand what these phenomena are. Okay. But that leads to my second point, and the last thing I'll say, which is that, in my view, the first responsibility of academics is to tell the truth. And the truth is, we have no idea what UFOs are, 
and no one in a position of power or authority is trying to find out. That should surprise and disturb us all, and I think raises the question of whether the people should try to find out for themselves first instead. Thank you.